This is the Chillinoy Podcast. He went to Northwestern and Johns Hopkins. Is that good enough for you? No, it's not. Well, Brennan, those are very prestigious schools. I smoked pot with Johnny Hopkins. This episode was recorded on Sunday, September 13th, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I am Cole Preston, and I'm your host for the Chillinois Podcast. And I am Justine from Canna Queens. All right, so before we get into today's show, I just wanted to quickly um, make an announcement. Um, last January, over 700 groups filed 4,000 applications for 75 Illinois cannabis dispensary licenses. On September 3rd, as reported by GrownIn.com, um, state cannabis regulators announced that of those applicants, only 21 groups won the right to enter the tiebreaker phase. And of those 21, there are many overlapping relationships and owners. If you want to hear more about um, that and the uh, scoring irregularities, check out our most recent episode with Mike Fouché from GrownIn.com. Um, it is very informative. We kind of break down what the hell's going on and you know we don't have the answers to everything right now because a lot of this stuff is still pending court litigation but from you know i guess long story short um the 21 applicants people aren't really asking that they be like that that be changed but what they're asking is that um this whole thing goes in accordance to law so a lot of people didn't get deficiency notices and they noticed scoring irregularities and so all they're asking is for a fair um, review of their application so hopefully uh, if that happens um, the tiebreaker pool will be a little bit larger Um, so like I say nobody's really calling for the 21 applicants to be pulled out because for all intents and purposes there are some weird things going on with you know weird relationships or whatever and we talk about that in the episode but for the most part we're just talking about giving everybody the fair um, process that they were promised. And so on that note, if you guys could go to vote.gov or vote.org, um, this stuff's important. Um, so I don't really know the difference between either of them. Um, Mike Fouché and I talked about these two websites on the last podcast and long story short, go to both of them, um, because they'll get you the information you need, um, to find out when your local elections are happening, how you register to vote, how you can get your mail-in ballots. If you don't feel you know, that you can go in to vote and, you know, do that. It, but if you're able to go in to vote, go in to vote. If you're going to mail in your ballot, do it now. Try to give the U- U.S. Postal Service some time. Um, long story short, super important to vote. So without further ado, Justine, why don't you uh, introduce our guest on today's show? Yeah, so today we are going to be having a conversation with Chris Zach. Um, this is someone that Cole has talked to quite a few times, but I myself, this is the first time that I'm meeting him. Um, so without further ado, hello, Chris, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Cole and Justine. I'm very happy to be here today. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, about your involvement in the cannabis industry. Sure. Sure. Um, it's a, it's kind of a funny story cause I kind of fell back into it, um, and uh, now in, in the last few years, as I can kind of look back, it's, 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 it's been an interesting uh, path. But uh, like a lot of people, um, very excited as a um, illegal consumer um, over the many years, um, I, I've always kind of considered myself a medical patient, regardless of, you know, what 
you know, my, my day-to-day purposes were for consuming cannabis. It was always for medicinal ends. Um, and for many years, illegally medicating and risking my livelihood and, and you know, that of my family and, and everything. So when the program passed, um, you know, I was very excited and there wasn't a lot of support at the time the governor, um, you know, was, uh, well, it was passed under one governor, Quinn, and then kind of rolled out under Rauner, who obviously didn't really want the program to succeed. Um, so as the time that they were coming up to patient, patient licensure, there really didn't seem like there was a whole lot of support. Um, so I kind of blazed my own trail and, and found out how to become a patient, um, you know, go through the, the steps of the application and everything. And, uh, you know, November of 2015, um, you know, doors opened up at the dispensaries and I was not on day one, but I was there in the first week and, and it was one of the happiest moments of my life. You know, it was kind of the culmination of a lot of stress and anxiety and worries over the years. And um, it just felt really good to finally be able to legally purchase and consume something that had been so beneficial to me. Um, I obviously was very excited. So over the coming months, um, the dispensary that I chose was just by chance, uh, the Clinic Mundelein, which happened to be the closest dispensary and one of the first, I think they were the first of two to open on day one. So though it was a bit further, I live in Chicago and, um, you know, the Clinic Mundelein was way up in, you know, north, you know, close to Wisconsin. It still was a worthwhile hour drive to buy legal cannabis. So um, over the few months, uh, I, I developed a relationship with the staff that were working there. And a few months into it, um, got a very good email from the general manager uh, saying, hey, we, we like you and you seem to know a thing or two about cannabis. Um, any chances you'd like to work here? Um, and then that basically was my beginning, um, sat down and talked with them and, and, you know, I, I was working and I had a career, you know, I was, I was working for many years in biomedical research and community development and nonprofits and universities. And I knew it was something that I was really passionate about, but I knew it was also something that was going to be challenging financially if I were to kind of take a dive in. Um, so kind of thought about it and said, well, I think I can keep the nine to five, you know, Monday to Friday, maybe they can work out something where I can work a Saturday or something. And, and it, that's how it worked out. So kind of September of 2016, I became a uh, licensed patient care specialist or bud tender up at the clinic Mondeline and started working Saturdays. Um, and it was an interesting thing because I was Monday to Friday, I was working at the university of Illinois at the time, university of Illinois, Chicago. And uh, I was working in the department of medicine and I'm kind of a grant development guy. So research development, uh, you know, sponsored grants for, for things, you know, at, at hospitals and, and for, you know, kind of science and pharmaceutical development and things. And so kind of Monday to Friday, I'm, I'm working in a hospital at a university, you know, kind of wearing a shirt and tie and, and you know, it, you know, in, in very much serious clinical uh, 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 care and clinical research. And then on Saturday, kind of let the hair down and, and, and kind of work with this new crop of, of more alternative patients. To me, it was very similar to what I had done, just it was a different group and it was without rules. And or I mean, it had a lot of rules, but it was existing in a, in a, in a, in a spot, I guess, where rules had not yet been determined. Um, we were just kind of kind of making it up as we went. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, like I said, September 2016, and then that was part-time. And then within the year, I knew I'd kind of burn out. So within the year, I uh, uh, an opportunity came up with a new dispensary that was going to be open and in Chicago, and um, they needed some help. So that got me in the next year, September of 2017, full-time. 
and I kind of parlayed my work with the patient community and my ability to kind of speak as a patient and towards cannabis um, and, and with my background in clinical medicine and things, uh, I started working on outreach and trying to help patients get through the very difficult process. At the time, it was much more uh, complex than it is now to become a registered patient. And then also helped on kind of building out a dispensary and kind of, you know, getting the community aware that we were going to be there and that we intended to be a good neighbor and all that kind of stuff. So I did that for about a year until the dispensary opened. And then around the time that the adult use bill passed, and it wasn't really motivated specifically by that, but when the adult bill passed, um, I decided to kind of leave the industry because I had done kind of what I wanted to accomplish. And then uh, that thus began the, the next chapter of my life, which I'm in right now. Wow. Gotcha. Yeah, that's quite a story. So we know that the next chapter of the story um, is kind of a an intersection of cannabis and healthcare, um, which is very interesting. So tell us more about that intersection and kind of what, I mean, we know obviously your background in cannabis now, but what brought you to this specific position? So very good question. So, you know, one, just given, you know, I have a good background. I'm a, I'm a business guy, you know, I wasn't, I'm not, you know, trained in terms of, you know, medicine or, or I'm not a scientist in that regard. Um, but being around it for many years um, can kind of speak the language and have a decent understanding of, of the, the, the scientific process. Um, as a patient, I knew what was available to me. And I knew that, you know, I'll be honest, I knew from my experience, my background that, um, you know, dealing with chronic pain and dealing with, um, you know, depression and other behavioral health disorders, you know, really the only standard treatment is pharmaceuticals. Um, and a lot of times those are more detrimental than, you know, um, than the actual, you know, health condition. Um, so I knew I was kind of on a one-way path. Um, that's kind of why as a patient, I've always chose cannabis, legal or illegal, regardless. Um, professionally, I saw a big opening and I saw an opportunity because there's, there's really a disconnect between the, you know, medical community and the scientific community when it comes to street drugs or, um, you know, things that would have a, uh, substances that would have a positive uh, potential therapeutic benefit. Um, cannabis is looked at in the academic community as just, you know, pot, weed, whatever. It's a drug. There's, you know, and at the federal level currently, and, you know, for some time pr probably will continue to be labeled as a schedule one, which means there's no accepted medical value. I disagreed as a patient and as a professional, I disagreed as well. And I knew that there was other professionals out there that agreed they just didn't have the understanding. They didn't understand the street terms because they weren't necessarily immersed in the street culture. And though I wasn't myself, I understood it enough because how was I to source my medicine over the many years? You know, you, you end up in situations and positions where, you know, you, you kind of, you have to understand the culture because, you know, you're, you're seeking out goods in, a, in an illegal illicit market. So you kind of have, you know, you need to know, speak the language and things like that. So I always saw myself as kind of a liaison between the street and the community and the culture that we're consuming over the years and really knew cannabis very well and knew its benefits. And then this kind of burgeoning uh, opportunity with research. And even though it's still technically not allowed in terms of dosing patients and studying the effects um, without tripping over a lot of red tape, there's still a lot of opportunities for observational research. And so that's really kind of what I saw an opportunity because I've seen firsthand from my own perspective as a patient that I was able to stay off painkillers and muscle relaxers 
and benzodiazepines and SSRIs and a host of other things um, and really medicate naturally with, with one single form of medicine versus a whole, you know, you know, medicine cabinet full of other more toxic compounds. Um, so I, I knew that I had that at my disposal and I knew that I could speak to it. And I knew from my experience working with hundreds of other patients in, in terms of being a bud tender or patient care specialist and being an outreach person, connecting people, walking them through the steps, finding a physician, submitting applications. I knew that this was working for people. So I wanted to present myself to the medical community, to the research community as, again, a, a, a person who knew something, a knowledge center, a resource, if they were interested in observationally researching. So to that end, um, currently I'm back in research. I'm an administrator. So kind of the business side of making sure that the money is being spent properly, that the proper protocols are in place for human subjects research, that, um, you know, uh, developing um, funding opportunities in terms of submitting grant proposals and managing them, et cetera, um, putting smart people in a room together and giving them the resources that they need to, to accomplish things. That's kind of my, always been my role, and that's continued to be so in an institutional setting. So I work in a hospital now, and uh, uh, it's called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. And they're kind of leaders in um, that actually number one hospital in the world for the rehabilitation of um, spinal cord injury and disease. So just oddly enough, if you look at the list of qualifying conditions in the state of Illinois, about 60 to 70% of them are neurological based. So a lot of the patients in the hospital um, are dealing with chronic pain that's caused from an injury um, or dealing with MS or Parkinson's or cancer that was of the spinal cord or of the brain. Um, these are all things that we know observationally, either as patients or being part of the patient community, that there is some benefit. Cannabis does provide some benefit to, to, these, to these conditions, disorders, and diseases. Um, so I wanted to be the liaison. And, and now this is, of course, a very challenging thing because um, most research is done through private, um, like pharmaceutical research is done through, you know, uh, private contracts, um, right. service contracts. But most of the research in terms of for the public good comes from federal tax dollars, so uh, federal subsidies. And because it's federally illegal, um, groups that do federal research, which my institution does, are very challenged um, to be leaders in research and, and the, you know basically recommending clinically something that's federally illegal. So right now that's a big hangup. So there's a yeah. huge part of the medical community that would like to take a more leadership role. There's a huge part of the medical community that would like to actually like recommend, but they're really limited by the fact that at the federal level, um, the illegality in the schedule one really prevents them. And I think from an administrative level at, at the top, most of these institutions are terrified of losing their money. And it's not just research money, it's money from Medicaid, Medicare, you know, public subsidies. So that's kind of the crossroads we're at right now. So, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate right now for expanding our research opportunities and for, you know, at the federal level to kind of set, um, you know, and we have a lot of opportunities to do that. But, but also, you know, more or less the support that it's okay, because there's nothing illegal about talking to people about cannabis or recommending cannabis. Um, but there's a fear that that's going to lead to loss of funding or um, kind of a, a, a stigma from the rest of the community that, oh, they're just potheads or that they're recommending these silly drugs when they should really sure. do something. So. 
So that's where sure. right now is I'm in the kind of the crossroads and the, the crosshairs actually of trying to be a leader, but also understanding that, you know, institutions need to know where their bread is buttered. And right now it's a little scary to recommend something that's categorically illegal. Well, and you're caught in an interesting catch 22 because you, you, like you're basically being told that you can't recommend this because there's no medic medicinal benefit, no research points to it. But on the same hand, you're being told you can't research it. So it's like, how do we, how do we break out of this mold? You know? Yep. And there are some options. We have actually something coming up very soon with the more act and, and it's not going to save the world, but you know, um, you know, cause first it has to pass, but, but it does open up better opportunities for research and for, uh, more, uh, clinical care. Um, you know, you know, if you think about the veteran community, um, you know, that's usually one of the first places that an advocate for cannabis would say, what about the veterans? You know, typically um, underserved, underrepresented in terms of when they come home from service. And, and we, uh, you know, if you know the numbers or not, they're pretty rough in terms of what happens to a returning veteran with, with trauma. Um, typically, every, all, all veterans returning have some sort of PTSD. Um, the, the standard of care is pretty awful and horrific. Um, so at a very minimum, you know, we have at a federal level, a lot of leaders in Congress, you know, banging the drum saying, let's at least allow that. But amongst the most ardent opponents of, of medical cannabis is our folks in law enforcement for a lot of reasons and in uh, military in armed services. And so at that level at the VA, even though a lot of the healthcare providers and advocates in the VA system are very much pro cannabis, it's, it's like, you just don't talk about it because it'll get you in real big trouble. Right. So before we get to Justine's next question, I just wanted to kind of, um, see what I could get out of you on this. We talked to, we've talked about in the past, how you believe cannabis is a catalyst for change, not only for our society, but for the medical community. Can mm -hmm. you maybe uh, talk about that? I thought that your, your ideas on that were super interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, so you think about it, we, you know, we're, we're living history right now, you know, we're, we're making history and, and, you know, people are going to look back on the last few years, you know, 10, 20 years and, and currently now and over the next few years as being a major social change, a social revolution. And um, mostly what I mean by that is, you know, we've had, we have a, a handful of, of plant-based medicines that have really been around since the dawn of mankind. And, and, you know, regardless of, of the politics, you know, probably have some sort of um, observationally a positive effect on, on certain health conditions that have become really prolific in the last couple generations. And so when I say cannabis is a catalyst for change, cannabis is soft, right? It's, it's, you know, even people that think, oh my God, it's horrific. I mean, you know, get a little close to the cannabis consuming, you know, culture. And most people are pretty quick to say, okay, well, it's really not that bad. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an easier thing to swallow than some of the other things say like psychedelics. And so if, if we can look at cannabis as kind of paving the road for starting with decriminalization and then it goes into medicinal use and then it goes into a highly regulated adult use and then it goes into a more open competitive market kind of a thing, we're seeing this life cycle, right, it, it being established right in front of us. And that life cycle is going to be copy and pasted for other plant-based medicines that have just as much, if not more, therapeutic value. So I, I would say within the next generation, we will probably have access to a whole host of new medical, uh, uh, um, I, I, I guess, pharmacological um, products, substances 
that have been around and have been used as medicines for forever, but have always been exempt from the research and the, I mean, our, our ability to find, figure things out over the last 30, 40, 50 years is, is, is incredibly escalated. That's all been uh, exempt from, you know, cannabis and, and, and psilocybin and, you know, ayahuasca, DMT, maybe you can kind of look it up at mescaline. There's a whole host of potential therapeutic uh, compounds and substances in, in, in plant-based medicines that haven't been gotten the, uh, the ability to be studied and researched in a significant way. Cannabis is going to pave the way for all of those and allow for multiple markets to open for medicinal and adult use. And I think that, that again, that template is being made right now as we speak with cannabis. Awesome. We'll definitely return to that topic of ayahuasca and other fun psychedelic drugs. But Justine, you had a question? Yeah. So Chris, you were talking about kind of the life cycle of going from it, the cannabis being, you know, completely illegal, nobody talks about it, to the medical program, to now adult use. And I'm just kind of curious to know what are your thoughts on that, the recent transition that we had here in Illinois, I guess it's been about nine and a half months now, but mm -hmm. going from medical to adult use. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be, I'll start off and say, you know, on the positive side, it's awesome. It is absolutely awesome that in our lifetimes, cannabis is legal right now. In in, in some capacities, it's 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 progress, and it's and it's wonderful, and I'm so happy. And and I thank the politicians, and I thank the the business leaders, and I thank the voters in the community. So I'm really going to say emphatically that I I'm very happy that it's that that we're having a, a positive change. But in reality it's been a bit of a disaster and it's full of flaws. And of course there's tons of problems. Now I'm still on the fence with, is it worth it? You know, am I, am I really happy? Am I not? And, and but I'll stick with my original thoughts. I'm very happy that something as monumental of, as this has happened. So I can't complain and say it's all terrible, but there's significant improvements needed. And, and really it started day one with the fact that medical patients have never really had an Illinois um, I've, as a pay, I've been a patient since day one. I had my card before they even opened up dispensaries. I've never, ever felt supported by the state of Illinois. I've never felt that I was, you know, I felt at first that I was just being allowed to do something, you know, that they could collect some taxes on, that I should have some sort of shame or stigma. Um, even after the rollout of, of adult use and rec, I still think that it's, it's just not fully super supported. Um, well, and Chris, we're not to cut you off, but yep. you know, maybe something that contributed to you feeling maybe some sort of shame or whatever. I always like to rewind the tape for people that, you know, in the the early days of the medical cannabis community or the medical cannabis program, you actually had to get your fingerprint taken. You had to go through a background check. I mean, it's terrible. What? It's terrible. It, was, it, was being, it was being made to feel a criminal. And, and I'll be honest, when that was my number one job, my, you know, it was my number one responsibility to try to get more patients into the program or to try to, you know, or more so to be the, the person who could help people connect the dots. Right. And it was yeah. really tough because I knew that a lot of people would benefit and I wanted people to pursue the route. But if there's, you know, somebody who's a little bit older or a little bit, you know, more feeling the stigma side of not really wanting to be outed in terms of their use or their licensure. And you tell them, okay, you're going to have to go get your fingerprints done. The FBI, they're going to run an FBI background search. You know, you're going to take your picture, like a mugshot. 
tons of, and that's why we didn't have any patients for the first three years. I mean, we were yeah. 15,000 patients in, in the 10th or 11th largest state in the country that has like one of the highest consumption rates of cannabis. It's because it was, a, it was, it felt criminal. And, you know, imagine a 70 year old woman dying of breast cancer. Is she really going to go get her fingerprints taken? I mean, it, it, that really was ridiculous. And I'm right that they responded to that. It only took them about three years. <laughs> But, but no, but so back when they, when they opened up, I think number one, the biggest flaw was that they were just significantly, the, the infrastructure was significantly underestimated. Um, and, and so I said, you know, before I, I never really felt supported as a medical patient. Well, I felt completely and utterly kicked to the curb once, once January 1st rolled around to say, all right, now we really don't care about you. And, and at first it was the state, but then it was the industry. I really felt abandoned by the industry because you know, I, I mean, I don't want to speak out of class, but I mean, I, the, the infrastructure in terms of growth space just isn't there. It isn't, it hasn't been there ever. It's not there now. Um, but it seemed like there was still an intentional holding the brake on building out, increasing space, you know, gross canopy space and things at the cultivated medical cultivators. Um, it seemed that products were becoming more and more in short supply. Um, it seemed that good products weren't, you know, medical products that were not necessarily like recce or adult use like you couldn't really find cbd products or, or ratios that were more therapeutic it just seemed to be as of january it was like it's high thc it's things that have you know you know recognizable brands and names and strains that you know you can read about in high times you know med medicinal products like you know salves and oils and lotions and things that that weren't necessarily going to get you zooted up you know that didn't really seem to be on the shelf you know so i, I think that one, from the state side, they really significantly underestimated how much space was going to be needed and how much the demand was going to be there to this day is a problem. Um, but I think in terms of the industry, too, I think that they're, they just kind of focused on the rec crowd. And I guess as business owners, I can't necessarily criticize them. So it always goes back to the state for saying, you know, if, if we were really in a, a medical program and a pilot program, maybe they shouldn't have necessarily given the, the reins of the program to a bunch of venture capitalists, you know? Yeah, and I think that I really think that you're hitting it right on the head here because as a medical patient, it's not hard to, um, you know, almost feel disrespected by the state for being a medical patient. I mean, you look at other states where you can go to Washington or Oregon, and because of how their program was set up, they can get eighths for $20. But yep. even as a medical patient here in Illinois, you're still paying, you know, close to $60 an eighth. Yep. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree with you that you never really feel truly supported, especially once you start looking around at how other states treat their medical patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Four years ago, I remember, you know, this is about the time. It was almost to the day four years ago when I started as a patient care specialist. And I, from then I said, hey, well, you know, as as the program develops, you know, it's just simple economics. The prices will come down. Well, four years later, they haven't. And actually, they've gone up in terms of, of, you know, I've seen even higher prices than the early days of the program. So it's 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 pretty tough. It's pretty tough to be a patient. It's pretty tough to look at this in terms of um, uh, accessibility when a lot of patients consume at a level that's outside of the norm of a standard, you know, recreational user. Um, and to that end, to supply, uh, or consistently supply, particularly in a very tough economy, is the worst um you know, financial disaster we've really ever seen uh, with COVID, um, it's really tough. It's really tough to afford medicine. And so inevitably, what does that do? It pushes a lot of medical users or just users in general 
um, to the street, back to the black market where, and it, that kind of really undermines the whole point of the program, right? I mean, you know, from the state's perspective, there's no control. So from a medical perspective, here we go, same old questions, you, you know, what's in, what's in the product? If it's, if it's from, coming from a licensed uh, facility, a cultivator, well, there's, there's, you know, there's quality control, you know, and there's testing and there's things that allow for, um, you know, there's a guarantee that, that, that certain things are not in that product. The street doesn't have the same level of controls. And, you know, it's also furthering a criminal enterprise. You know, I, don't, I never really wanted to support the drug cartels or, you know, um, you know, and all that and gangs and, you know, crime and everything. Um, but, but when it comes down to I want to stop my seizures or I want to try to survive cancer or I want to be able to eat some dinner because I'm going through chemo or I want to walk and I have MS and it's the only thing that can help me move. You know, these are, these are things that you don't really think about, you know, you're just going to spend the money. And, and so again, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, I know Illinois is mostly just about collecting the taxes on it, but I think that they're really underestimating how many people would access cannabis for medicinal use if it was more accessible in terms of price and in terms of product availability. Well, and I just, I want to go back to just piggybacking off of that point and returning to a point you made earlier, you were talking about how we are fundamentally underprepared um, and you specifically noted the infrastructure for gross space just isn't there. I mean, um, it's, it's crazy. I was just looking at it and I think this was reported on, okay, June 2nd, but 102 out of all of so 102 out of 267 total complaints for the medical cannabis program were filed in tw- 2020 alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just, that's, that's crazy to me. And one of the things that I want to return to, like you said, we're fundamentally underprepared. All of the cult all of the cultivators that are operating right now fucking lied to us. And I'm saying that pretty bluntly because there was a uh, demand study that they released actually countering Illinois Normals demand study. So the the chapter of Illinois Normal released a demand study saying that exactly what you were just saying that the the everything was and this was before all adult use happened that everything was shaping up to ha, uh, to basically make the Illinois cannabis be super underprepared. Everything was looking bad, and they they released that report so that everybody could see and um registered illinois cannabis patients or sorry registered illinois cannabis companies actually made like kind of a counter study and said no 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 we we got this we're going to be totally good and as we saw in january um we saw statewide shortages in product for nearly you know for the nearly one hundred thousand registered medical cannabis patients and I mean, it, I can't remember. I can't find the report right now. I'm trying to Google it. If you guys can find it, please send it to me. Um, somebody actually did a um, little bit of independent research and looked at all 50 dispensaries because, mm-hmm. of course, there aren't fucking many. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've got a low mm-hmm. number of dispensaries yeah. compared to other states. And they took screenshots of the menus leading up to adult use legalization where you'd have like 50 options for flour. Um, you know, 40 options for concentrate. And then as soon as adult use came around, um, you see the options go from 50 to 13 on the medical side. Oh, it it's was just like, it's crazy. It was terrible, terrible. And, you know, and, and, you know, call your patient at that point, like, so about, it was about six months before the end of the year. It was, so it was about, you know, June, July. Yep when we started seeing shortages and part of that was because there was a significant uptick in, in the number of patients, but 
I really think, and I think a lot of people think that they were starting to hit the handbrake. And, you know, I, we, that you're, you're referencing a report from the Medical Cannabis Industries Association, which is mostly uh, most of the companies in Illinois that um, not all of them, but I think, you know, 80 percent of the companies are members of that. And it's and it's led. I won't say any names, but it's led by a, a next lawmaker you as a spokesperson. And you're right. They basically said, you know, despite what normal has said that you basically need to. And in normal was like, you know, they're saying like like five to ten times the capacity. You know, so that's significant. That's not just like you need a couple more dispen- or a couple more cultivation centers. They're like, you need to like ramp this up huge. And they're like, no, we got it. And that's where the and that's what the state did. They said, oh, okay, we're just going to let these guys give it a crack. Um, you know, so it's kind of questionable. You know, of course. And and the other thing I want to point out is that that you know there was another thing that the Medical Cannabis Industries Association said that listen, some of these shortages are coming from the fact that you know we didn't know that we were going to be expanding into the adult use market, so all the cultivators waited to invest money into their expansion of their grows, and that of course takes a long time to get the approvals and do the work and get it inspected and everything. If you look at the size of Illinois and you say, listen. The second you, and you look at any, just basic logic says the day you open up, if you allow people 21 and above to come in from anywhere in the Midwest to buy cannabis, that it's basically, you're going to sell anything that you have. So, you know, you got all these, you know, very wealthy companies, which is what it is in Illinois, of course, a bunch of wealthy companies that are waiting because, oh, well, we didn't know we were going to be able to expand. So they waited till the very last second to start their, their corporate expansions or expansions or cultivation centers. You know, if I, I'm not a businessman, obviously, because I'm not in the business anymore, but I would have had my facility to the maximum square footage allowed as possible, knowing that it's just inevitable. But, but right. you know, forced, uh, you know, when you constrict supply, you know, when you have a huge amount of demand, obviously, the only thing that's going to happen after is you're going to have a lot higher price, the cost is going to go up. And I think that also coincides with a significant decrease in the quality of product the medical to say medical just to say cannabis products that you know so at the same time the shortages were happening and the prices were starting to go up or you know solidify the quality was going down so when you think about it from a from an economic perspective they, these guys kind of stumbled on the best possible business plan you can sell yeah. garbage you make garbage and sell it for top prices and that's what we have had for over a year and we'll continue to have for probably another year or two until you know i don't know what's going to happen you know we have supposedly craft cultivation licenses to be announced at the end of this month. If it's any, if the dispensary license (laughs) last week was any uh, indicator, it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be a bunch of clouded connected companies um, that are going to get licenses. There's going to be lawsuits and it's, this is going to, this is going to restrict everything. So there's going to be very little movement on this for quite some time. Um, And even if, even if they allowed all the craft cultivation licenses to be awarded and built out, I think that if you take every single craft uh, license added up, it's still less square footage allowable than one current medical cultivator. <laughs> yep. We're just really not anywhere close to Illinois to having the infrastructure and capacity to handle this. This is really, I mean, and if, and if you know, it doesn't take too much tinfoil uh, to think there's a little bit of a conspiracy here going on. And like I said, if you put, if you do, if you look back in time, you see, you know, you know, four shortages or, or, kind of manip- manufactured shortages, decrease in quali- qu- uh, uh, product quality, and an increase in price. And, and, and that's, you know, as a patient, that really pisses me off. 
Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, so um, increases in price. I can think of a few examples off the top of my head. They used to sell uh, Cresco RSO, which of course RSO is a, a product that a lot of sick, really sick people use. They now, so it used to be $50, you could get a gram. Now they only sell you, uh, they, you can only buy half grams and those yep. cost 35 bucks. Yep, so That's not even, that's a lower lower amount you can buy, higher price for it. Um, I want to remind people, Chris, you were talking about manufactured shortages. On December 29th, I actually wrote a little article on our Reddit, and I was talking about the fact that, um, you know, a dispensary, Maribus and Springfield kind of started the trend of the one gram of flour limit a day. Other uh, dispensaries like Sunnyside instituted a limit of seven grams of flour a day per patient. We're talking, I'm talking, this was on December 29th it had been going on for a while this was before adult use mm -hmm. and these are for patients which is that's especially troubling to think about a seven gram limit a day when you consider that some patients have an allotment of upwards of 10 ounces a month yep. and um that i actually found the article that i was talking about cbs chicago recently cited an independent investigation that was conducted by an advocate that counsels cannabis patients the advocate scanned websites of 53 of the 55 state licensed dispensaries in Illinois. And in the investigation, they found that at least 25% of the dispensaries had less than six product options. And I want to return to a point that you brought up, uh, Chris, and actually Pamela Altoff, the executive director of the Cannabis Business Association of Illinois, um, brought up in an, an attempt to offer an explanation to the shortage situation. She said that cannabis is a biological product. It's grown. It's not a widget. I feel like that's kind of condescending, but um, she continued with saying that uh, we are seeing a rapid growth in the medical uh, cannabis program, which is constraining uh, somewhat the available availability. And as Kelvin McCabe, a director on Illinois Normal noted, um, the idea that we're seeing some sort of rap or that we were seeing now we're talking in December 29th, right? Mm -hmm. I could definitely see the argument being made now that we're seeing a rapid expansion with the, you know, things kind of loosened up with COVID and everything else. But the idea that at that time we were seeing some sort of rapid expansion of people enrolling in the program um, was, it's just not a fact-based excuse. So um, there had not been um, from the numbers you can see month to month, we had added uh, from July to December about 11,000 people. And that's a modest increase because we can't actually track the number of currently enrolled patients, which is unfortunate. Mm. So at the time, I think in December, we, it said we had 90,000 cardholders registered since September of, what was it, Chris, 2014 or something? But that's not the number of currently enrolled um, patients. So it was just, it, it pissed me off to see them throw around that excuse when it was like, we don't even really know how many um, registered patients there were. The closest thing we can get to that number is the number of uh, patients served in a dispensary. Yeah. Yeah. And that didn't really increase at the time. Like we didn't see a statistical a statistically significant increase. And so these, those, ex that line that was thrown around by a few different people that were seeing some sort of rapid expansion, I think it was brought up because if you'll recall at the time we had expanded the program to include PTSD and then we were going to make it so that you could get your provisional license 
Yeah. But it was just like, I felt like they were just picking a straw. Out. It wasn't a very strong argument. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. And and that really actually sums it up perfectly. And, and, and I don't want to say that name before, but Pam Elto, that is exactly, and, and, and that's whom the representative in the face of the industry that said, oh no, we got this, we got enough space. And then turned around and said, actually, we don't have it. And this is, and these are the reasons why, because there's more patience. And that, and that is exactly what, and, and I like that you, you, you threw in the bit from Kelvin McCabe there, who is probably one of the best leaders behind the scene as uh, in this industry, you know, medical or adult use, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, since day one has been hollering saying there's not enough space, there's not enough cultivation. And it's because there's no competition amongst the cultivators, then there's no, there's, there's no competition in terms of like, there's no need to make better quality or, you know, better prices because they're all basically part of the same collective, you know, of, of the very few allowed to uh, cultivate and distribute. And, um, and, and that's really unfortunate. And I think that a person like Kelvin, you know, would consistently and continuously bang the drum of the only solution here is to open up the market. And instead of looking back, like Pam Altoff has done and make excuses as to why that they, they screwed up their forecasts. It's not, they didn't screw up anything. It was, it was always controlled and manipulated to do exactly what it did was to allow a sale of inferior goods for a high price. So. Yeah, it's, it's fucked up. I mean, it is. when you look, it is. when you look back on it, but yeah, big shout out to Kelvin McCabe. Um, he is an inspiration to me and I just will speak for, I guess the community, many, many others. Yeah. He's a great guy. If you join the medical cannabis community on Facebook, he's pretty active there. He's a moderator there. Um, definitely trying to get him on the podcast cause he's done a lot of good in, uh, for this industry. So shout Absolutely. out to him. So, um, I wanted to take a moment to talk about psychedelics before we return to the to- uh, topic of griminess in the Illinois medical cannabis industry. Let's do it. Um, yeah. So tell us, what do you think about um, psychedelics and their role that they will play in plant-based medicine going forward? Oh, cool. So excited. So excited. And, and really because cannabis, like I said before, you know, that was the template, the, the life cycle of, taking an illegal, illicit, stigmatized substance and turning it into something that's, one, medicinally uh, or viewed as potential therapeutic medicine, and two, something that, even if it's not medicinal, is something that a, a, an adult can consume at their leisure because they're, goddammit, they're an adult. So in the same, you know, to the same extent, psychedelics, um, I think, are going to kind of follow that template. Um, the cool thing is, is that, you know, again, anecdotally, observationally, we know those in medicine know that, and those that have been involved in progressive and alternative medicines know that, hey, there's something in there. Unfortunately, like cannabis, uh, psychedelics, entheogens have been restricted and exempt from most kinds of, of traditional research over the last hundred years. Um, so though we may think we know, or we might have an idea, we're well behind the curve in, in, in understanding in a, in a bench science way what where the value is. Though, as cannabis kind of opens the door and we'll see some research opportunities in cannabis more and more, we're going to see the same in the psychedelics. And there's a couple of lead, you know, leaders right now and in, in, in that are already looking at this. Um, they don't have access to federal funds. They had to trip over tons of red tape, you know, it took years to get the, the uh, ability to, um, you know, dose or study patients or, or talk about or handle um, psychedelics in terms of that. 
but you got a group called MAPS, which is the uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies out on the West Coast. I think it's out in San Jose, California. Um, and then on the other side, you got in Baltimore and uh, Johns Hopkins University. A couple of years ago, they launched the Center for Psychedelic Studies, something like that. And so you got one of them. Johns Hopkins is like usually number one or number two in terms of federal funding, you know, to the tune of just for biomedical research from the National Institutes of Health, a billion plus a year. So they're really, I mean, leading it, doing very well in, in, in money from for research um, and MAPS doing very well in their own regard. Um, you know, kind of leading the way with private dollars. These are all private dollars coming from foundations or interested individuals that see a future in psychedelic medicine and theogens. Um, doing really good work. Uh, a lot of the the, the current uh, studies, they're small, but they're dealing with veterans and they're dealing with people with, you know, treatment resistant major depressive disorders, which is just, you know, we talk about a lot of you know, the word endemic and pandemic and things have been thrown around a lot lately. Well, you know, COVID aside and COVID needs to be dealt with and and, and, it, and it's really going to be an equalizer in terms of our life and culture. Um, but we were already in the midst of several other health epidemics. Number one of them was the mental health disaster that we have going on right now. Um, you know, and, and, and it's not just the prevalence of mental health disorders, it's the lack of treatment options and the exacerbation of mental health disorders based on treatment, meaning that a lot of people go into treatment and they actually get worse. And a lot of it is spurred by the medications, the, the pharmaceuticals that they're taking. So to that end, we have a very good op option and opportunity in front of us. And, um, you know, again, like I said, cannabis is kind of paving the way in terms of acceptability and destigmatization and research and, and, and acceptance of use. I look at psychedelics as being right behind that. And um, the other cool thing is, is that I, I hope that we can look at the cannabis rollout from decrim to uh, medicinal to adult use to kind of then just kind of more open. Um, I hope we can learn from the mistakes of the cannabis industry and not recreate those in terms of the next one. Um, you know, I, I don't want to see stockbrokers and venture capitalists take over a medicine, medicinal industry like they did with cannabis. I don't want to see um, something that's not even federally legal yet. Th that I mean, I've, they, they basically consider cannabis an already matured industry. It's not even legal. Um, I don't want to see the same thing happen to uh, you know medicinal mushrooms, psilocybin, and, and, and ayahuasca, and DMT, and things like that. I'd rather personally, as an advocate for for this as a healthcare option, I'd rather see it be studied by real scientists, not scientists hired by the cannabis industry, but by real scientists who are looking for the truth. And I'd rather see real physicians and clinicians, again, not those being hired and paid by the, by the industry, the people that, that are seeking to profit off of it. I want to see people that are indifferent and unbiased have do what they do best, which is study and make decisions based on data. And so I see a very big opportunity over the next several years in terms of a rollout of a much more robust um, um, research uh, uh, endeavor and enterprise um, looking at particularly um, uh, plant-based medicines for major depressive disorders and treatment resistant depression and things like that. But then thereafter also other things like, you know, we also have a pandemic or an endemic of um, autoimmune disorders and nobody can really understand, um, you know, while psychedelics are shown to deal with the immune system in, 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 in different ways. So, so that's really where I'm very excited about and, and looking as kind of down the road as being where I'm really going to kind of, you know, I really want to, you know, now that cannabis is, matured or done whatever i'm really looking at psychedelics and entheogens as being the next thing 
Gotcha. Um, so, Justine, I don't know about you, but I can hear my dad right now. I can hear him saying, um, I told you it was a gateway drug. I told you. So, Chris, what do you say to people that say that? Because I've got a response in my head, but what do you say to people? Because, I mean, look, this is I know people in our community right now that <clears throat> they're they're totally with me on cannabis um, legalization and decriminalization and just overall just treating cannabis like the plant that it is i mean it's just a fucking plant right so how do you how do you explain to other people that we're not jumping off the cliff with what some of these measures that you're proposing because some people when you start suggesting those things they lose they they kind of lose you you know what i mean so what do you what do you how do you explain that whole uh transition i guess or for yeah no absolutely i mean you know, I, I, I say I, I actually embrace the, the gateway, not the gateway drug theory that that's bullshit, but, you know, right. our drugs mantra. But um, I say, yeah, it's a gateway to better health, to less toxicity and to healthier communities. Um, you know, or say, no, it's not a gateway drug. It's an exit drug or it's a, you know, it's an exit from depression, an exit from pain, an exit from addiction. Um I did a lot of work because I had the ability to speak towards it and I had a pretty good network of physicians and clinicians in the Chicagoland area. Um, that's kind of when I was in the cannabis industry, that kind of helped me to make connections and, and speak things. Physicians are, are, they're fickle, you know, they'll be against something because they just have an assumption, but if you show them some data, then they might change their mind. Usually it takes one good patient to kind of sway a physician, a good physician will say, well, wow, I actually saw through my own eyes. And so I always encourage people to be honest with their doctors and their physicians and say, you know, you know, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but, but, but if you're finding value and benefit from something, share that with your doctor. Um, you know, so I found that sometimes, you know, there's some arrogance in terms of like, oh, it's, you know, drugs and hippies and weirdos, you know, and, 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 you know, I've always kind of gone across and said, well, does it matter if they're drug weirdo hippies, if somebody's living a happier, healthier life, what is it to you? You know, is it, is it so, are, are you, is, is your beliefs or your morals, or your ethics, is that so important that you would want to see somebody live an unhealthy or a, a, a more dangerous life? You know, like, like what is it about your beliefs that, that in, can infringe on others? There's not, nobody's hurting you. Right. So I've never had a problem with people that had kind of a, a, a stigma against something based on a culture when you bring up the, well, what if this could help somebody live a better life or survive chemotherapy or what, or, or, you know, you talk about the, you know, in cannabis, particularly the little kid with, with, um, you know, seizure disorders and that they're not having seizures anymore. Is, is your stigma so powerful and strong and your personal opinions so relevant that that child shouldn't have access to a potentially therapeutic benefit when they've not found anything else. I've still never met one person as hardcore, as conservative, as ignorant and stupid as they may be. I've never met one person that would say, no, because, because of my ignorant feelings, I'd much rather have that child die. I've not yet encountered that. So I usually just throw, well, is your opinion more important than the lives of others? And people typically say, you know, they stop talking at that point. Right. So I just, you know, the, the argument that I make for the legalization of, of drugs, um, and, and one point I like to make on the Chillinois podcast is that cannabis is not legal in the state of Illinois or, or really anywhere in the United <laughs> States because of the federal, but it's a little bit more legal in the state of Illinois. That's the argument that I make. But um, <clears throat> um, so my, you know, the 
the devil on my shoulder or the devil's advocate, the devil's advocate, so to say, whenever he hears, um, you know, people talk about legalizing drugs, they're like, they kind of, they kind of jump to a slippery slope argument, which is like, oh, well, you know, here we go. We're going to legalize heroin. And I like, first of all, I could argue that heroin is and technically was legal. Like, look at the Oxycontin Express. Like, it's just, you think about heroin, like, what you when people think about heroin, they think about the scary image of somebody shooting up on you know in an alleyway. Um, but there's plenty of people on legalized heroin or legalized methamphetamine, for that matter, Adderall. You know, um, there's you know Xanax, all the SSRIs, things you were talking about that you've uh, maybe encountered or in people that have used that you've encountered in their past. Um, so I don't know. I guess the argument that I'm making is that I. I think regulation is better. I think that, you know, um, I'm not saying that like everybody should start doing heroin. Nobody, I don't think is arguing that, but I do think that if you wanted to do heroin, you should have access to safe regulated, um, heroin that comes with instructions, (laughs) you know, how to do it. And, um, you know, just, just like with cannabis and alcohol and cigarettes, well, not with cannabis yet, but we'll see it soon. A surgeon's general warning, but you know, with cannabis, uh, with uh, cigarettes and alcohol, we've got a surgeon's general warning that tells you straight up, this kills you. This is going to kill you, but here you go. You can consume it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know. I guess what I'm arguing, it's kind of like the, I, I guess I'm arguing that prohibition just doesn't work. You can't, and I mean, that's obvious, an easy argument, but um, I think the most grotesque way I can pitch it is like, so we're talking about, you know, legalized, regulated heroin. Think about, to, like I say, pan over to a grotesque, maybe scary idea, but it's the idea of back alley abortions. Like, I'd much rather you be able to go to Planned Parenthood and get a regulated, um, licensed physician that will perform that procedure on you and talk you through what it means and everything else. I'd rather you do that than the person that's just going to fucking do it with a a fucking coat. Sorry to be graphic, but a coat hanger in the back alley. Like I, I feel like regulation is better. I feel like access to a regulated product is better. And I feel like a great example of that. What I'm talking about is the cartridge situation we recently saw in the cannabis industry. You know what I mean? Cause cartridges like, and concentrate itself. Like I don't, I know a lot of people that just do not feel comfortable buying that stuff on the black market anymore because Mm of, you know, things that have occurred with that. So. No, I I absolutely agree with you. And and actually, I mean, that you you just solved the problem of the war on drugs and, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a real tough thing and it's in, you know, a, a bit of a slippery slope, but, but in all reality, you know, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow, but harm reduction um, it, it get, you know, a lot of people get up in arms about it because they think that it encourages bad behavior. Um, you know, I grew up in, in, in a Catholic, Irish Catholic neighborhood. And I remember, you know, in high school, people were giving like Planned Parenthood was like giving away condoms. And like, you know, the school said, if anybody grabs condoms, they're going to be expelled. Like it was like the worst thing ever. And, and, you know, condoms aren't going to make people have sex. People are going to have sex anyways. And condoms are probably a better idea if they're going to be doing that. And the same mantra or the same token that, you know, if, if you instill a sense of, of regulation and distribution based on, you know, 
like healthier means. It's hard to say, hey, here's a healthier heroin for you. But but harm reduction says we're not encouraging a problem. We're just being there. We're just being realistic that the problem exists and we're trying to minimize the impact that it has on society. And, you know, you get a lot of shit from people about like, oh, my God, I'm not you know, I don't want my public resources going to a bunch of drug addicts and weirdos and hippies and this, that and everything how much money we spend on trying to clean, solve, or not solve, clean up the, the, the fallout of a problem and have, I mean, it's just getting out of hand. We spend so much money and the problem just gets worse, 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 and worse. And, and, and I don't have a great solution in terms of, yeah, we should just make heroin and crack and cocaine and everything legal. You said it before, they already all are. Every, they're just, heroin's just the name of a chemical substance. And that chemical substance is available in many forms at your local Walgreens. Same thing with cocaine and, I mean, maybe not coke, but, you know, amphetamine and methamphetamine. They're, they're, these are things that are all available in, at, a, at, a, at a pharmacy. And so if we can do it legally and legitimately there, can't we do it in, in, in other areas? And, and the war on drugs prohibition doesn't work. It just creates a massive black market and that black market is right now killing people left and right. And they've actually made so much money on drugs that they've moved into bigger things like financial crimes and robbing banks and Wall Street and hacking and all that stuff. So these illicit crime empires, these the mafia and the Russian mob and the cartels, they all got their, their start. And most of the liquidity and their revenues come from, from the prohibition of drugs. And I'm not saying let's all shoot heroin, but if people are going to be doing it, I'd rather it be done safely and in a way that's controlled. And I think other countries have taken the lead on that and shown that it's possible and viable to do it. It's just a little scary. And people, you know, they don't want to encourage use. Yes, I know that. But like like I said before, the reality is, is people are going to do drugs. People are going to do bad things. We're, we're, it's not a perfect world. So we got to think logically about it and put things into place that that minimize uh, the impact, the detrimental impact, and unfortunately, the cost of society, which right now is just absurd and ridiculous. Yeah, and I think that this whole conversation, too, is something that, um, you know, if any of our listeners or anything are parents, that this is something to keep in mind, like with your kids, too, that your kids are going to do this no matter what, but you need to educate them on where to get it, you know, how to safely use. You don't want to just sit there because it's kind of like going back to you saying that you were in a Irish Catholic high school, Planned Parenthood was passing out condoms. Studies show that teaching abstinence is not effective. So it's the same thing as like, you don't, don't tell people not to do these things. We need to educate people on if you're going to do it, here's the right way. Exactly. Yeah. Just don't, don't throw them out into the wind and say, Hey, good luck. You've never even heard of this stuff before. It's okay. Here's what it is. Here's how you do it. Here's where you get it. Just be safe. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you look at use and abuse and I, I worked the first few years of college, I never, I, the real funny thing, I, I didn't mention this in my little, who I am, you know, I, the only for-profit job I've ever worked in my life after high school or, you know, after, you know, as a kid, was in the cannabis industry. So I've, from, from, from the time I graduated college to the present day, I've worked at nonprofits and universities. So the, the four ish years I was in the cannabis industry, that was the only time I was in kind of a for-profit industry. Um, when I was in, I was, the first job I had was in substance abuse and I worked for a, a, you know, national nonprofit, uh, substance abuse treatment provider and I was doing grants and 
contracts and things like that and compliance and programmatic stuff and everything. It was amazing. It was just incredible. Great learning opportunity. And it gave me a really good kind of, you know, got my mind into things that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to. And that really helped me down the road. But, but what I wanted to say from that is that there's one of the toughest things about substance abuse is the isolation of the user. Um, you know, just, just, there's a stigma, right? Socially that, oh, I'm, there's something wrong with me and whatnot. So I think that if we globally embrace what cannabis is doing right now, it's removing a stigma on a, on a substance, on a thing, on a plant. It's also, this is the bigger part of it. It's removing a stigma on the person, on the user, on the consumer. And so if we take that to the next step, fuck yeah, it's a gateway. It's a gateway to embracing that people are flawed and a person who shoots heroin isn't a piece of shit and they don't, they shouldn't be living under in a dumpster or in a ditch or they shouldn't be given our scorn and we shouldn't spit on them. Like they're just human beings. Something happened in their life uh, and, and probably it happened to a lot of people just circumstantially for some reason, you know, something got a hook into a person um, and you go on and on about that. But, but at the end of the day, they're just people. They're just human beings. And I think that the downward spiral of, of substance abuse and, and, you know, real, real bad homelessness and, and, and you know, chronic homelessness and, and, and everything really is a dehumanization thing. People just don't look at homeless and, and, and severely, you know, addicted folks with as human beings. If we look at cannabis as, as destigmatizing that, destigmatizing a plant, destigmatizing a user, a consumer, then the heroin user may be actually able to come out of the shadows. All they're doing is medicating. They're just doing what anybody would do. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to either, you know, they're trying to solve a problem inside their, their, their body or their, their soul. And so to that end, we have options in terms of things that probably would work a whole lot better. Heroin's just accessible, right? Cocaine is just accessible. Well, what if psilocybin in the form of, you know, some sort of refined part of the, the mushroom, you know, or DMT from ayahuasca or mescaline from peyote or go on and on and on with potential other plant-based medicines and entheogens. What if those were better treatment options for people that are self-medicating on heroin and meth and things like that? I don't think people are shooting smack under a bridge because they love it. I think it's just what they do to survive, right? So I'm looking at that. I'm looking at um, if somebody says, well, you know, cannabis is a gateway or, oh, my God, you know, if we make mushrooms legal, then what's going to come next? Well, I have a suspicion and being somebody who's fairly smart and educated on the subject, I think it's actually going to change things positively because it makes us address the things we've been ignoring for a long time. And I think it allows us to put the resources in the proper buckets. Yeah. So let's go back to where this all started. So bear with me here for a second. So 19... Um, 1914, we had the Harrison's Narcotics Tax Act, which was the first um, law that restricted uh, the distribution and use of certain drugs. And then we saw an expansion of that in 1970 with Richard Nixon's Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. And um, so Nixon, if you guys will recall, declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one in 1971. Um, and in 1968, John Ehrlichman, actually it was in 1994, um, but his quote, uh, John Ehrlichman to Dan Baum said the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, 
we knew we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And the presidency of Ronald Reagan, of course, saw an expansion in the federal focus of, uh, well, unquote, preventing drug abuse. That's what they say they were trying to do. But really, they were prosecuting offenders. So the first term of uh, his presidency, Ronald Reagan signed the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, which expanded penalties uh, towards possession of cannabis. It established a federal system of mandatory minimum sentences, which is a huge problem still to this day, and established procedures for civil asset forfeiture. Um, so, you know, that all led from 1980 to 1984, the federal annual budget of the FBI's drug enforcement units went from 8 million to $95 million. So I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of background to the dehumanization of, um, drug users really. And it's, it's the, it's a certain list of drug users. That's what I love. You know, I, we work, we've worked in professional environments. Isn't it funny to see, um, your employer say that they're a drug free workplace, but then they serve coffee in the front office. I know. And when they, you know, and, 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 or they're in the business of dishing out pharmaceuticals left and right to the public, you know? Yeah. So uh, I wanted to return to a topic. Uh, I think this is going to be maybe a fun topic and <clears throat> I don't know. We've talked about, excuse me on that cough. I'm in the middle of smoking a joint. You know how that goes. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about the griminess in the can- in the Illinois cannabis industry because I'm under the impression that there's a lot. It's pretty bad. I, I you know, I, you know, and, and, and the assumption is is that well, there's there's probably griminess in any industry, particularly something that's quasi legal. Um, you know, uh, there was a lot of you know there was this this kind of thing that you, you had to be progressive as a as a business person because you know, once you went on the radar with this, you basically, the banks wouldn't do business with you on anything else. So, you know, it, it required a, a, a leadership, uh, you know, it, you needed to roll the dice essentially to, to kind of put yourself out there and everything. So, you know, we needed people that, that didn't mind and, you know, whatever. I don't know. I mean, in terms of startups, you know, I guess if you look at, you know, tech and Silicon Valley and, you know, financial, you know, all this and that stuff I'm not super well versed in, but you know, it's, it's very aggressive. Um, it's, it's, it's dog eat dog. I mean, it is, it's rough and, um, it's also very lucrative. I mean, I I joke all the time saying like, like, why would anybody question investing? You know, you know, it's it's a difference between investing in a company because a company could be full of a bunch of idiots than investing in an industry. But like, if you have, you know, this, this, this whole thing with the licensure, it's a golden ticket. You will make money. It's drugs. It's, it's marijuana. It's cannabis. I mean, these are things that have, you know, people have been doing cannabis for well longer than we have written record of. So, you know, this is just something that's inherent. People like to, 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 you know, elevate their existence. You know, they like to go into a different kind of realm, physically, emotionally, spiritually. This is, this is part of the human experience, right? So it's not like a risky, it's not like, oh man, I really hope my restaurant is successful. If you're in the cannabis industry, unless you're a real big idiot, you're going to do well. Um, so there's a lot of money. And I think there's a lot of money that people weren't really aware of. I mean, we're seeing the, the, the scope of consumption right now. It is amazing. We didn't really have figures or statistics on this before, or if they, it was, it existed, you know, from law enforcement's perspective, but 
the amount of consumption in cannabis, the amount of money, it's just like people are like, oh my God, every month it's breaking records. Yeah, no shit. So in, inevitably with that comes, you know, some skeeziness, uh, some griminess. Um, but, but for me, I was a little more altruistic and, and I probably, I think I got a little bit chewed up because I wanted to do good business. I wanted to stretch my, my wings and, and try something new. And, and I thought I had the chops and, um, really though, what I, what I learned is that there's not a whole lot of support of cannabis amongst the cannabis community or the cannabis industry. Um, I think a lot of people would be surprised that behind the scenes, it's not necessarily like a benefit to be, a, 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 a you know, you know, in terms of looking for jobs, you don't have a leg up on the competition in terms of applying for a job corporate in cannabis if you are a consumer or if you know your your way around plant or if you, you know, are an expert consumer. Um, that's not really a benefit. So um, they're, they're looking for, you know, in the industry, you know, folks that are have a good background with finance and that kind of hyper aggressive startup mentality, mergers and acquisitions and all that stuff. Um, there's also the political uh, griminess, which, you know, this is, a, I think, very relevant right now because within the week, we just kind of saw that. And, and, and though we don't really know exactly what's going on, and Cole, thank you for saying before that, you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with any of the current tying applicants for the next round of dispensary licenses, but there's some significant questions about the process in which they were scored and that it's just, it's just interesting that the majority of these tying applicants do have connections to the existing industry and the political institutions. So, so it's of course going to be a lot of nepotism and graft politically. Um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything terrible, but you know, collusion, things like that, you know, in terms of setting prices or setting, you know, supplies. Um, I think there's something to be said about the whole testing angle of um, testing for cannabinoids and, um, you know, we've seen that in other states. I don't think we've really seen it in Illinois, you know, publicly that there's been any issues or concerns. But, you know, I scratch my head sometime and say, you know, oh, everything's 34 percent THC. Well, it's great. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so, there, so I think that there's all those those major areas, the financing, the kind of the supply and cost strategies of supposedly different companies that are in competition with each other and then the whole like testing part of it and then of course now this new next round of licensure i think that that's where the grime is um and uh unfortunately um i don't see the way out of that other than opening it up for for more and more competition but it doesn't seem the state is very supportive of that yeah it is definitely a limited market um and i think that's it's kind of the way it always has been. And it's interesting that it seems to be the way that we're continuing. I mean, it, it it's kind of weird, Chris, that it's the number 21 again. I mean, yeah. we had we had 21 cultivators for the, yeah. I think still, uh, 21 cultivators. That's what we have. And now we've got 21 more uh, licenses. It was 75, but 21 companies being the uh, people that, that will potentially hold those 75. So, and I just think it's interesting. I mean, we talked about it on our episode with, or I talked about it with Mike Fouché. Justine wasn't on that episode. Um, but it's just interesting that 700 companies, 4,000 applications, yep. but we only had 21 companies in the tiebreaker phase. Yep. And, and again, like, I'm glad you reiterated what I said. It's not that we're calling into question the 21. We're really calling into question uh, what, 
you know, like what was the scoring rubric? What did it look like for the rest of uh, the companies? You know, some some companies received deficiency notices that weren't accurate. Some didn't receive a deficiency notice, which again, that's, that's what I was talking about, where they're just really asking for uh, what they were promised, which was a fair procedure because you, you receive the deficiency notice and then that that starts a time period of 10 days in which you can try to correct that deficiency in order to make your application more perfect, I guess, you know, yeah. get yourself more points. And some of these people didn't even get that opportunity. And so yeah. the fact that um, there are apparently 21 people that tied, it's like, well, hold on a second. I didn't even get my opportunity to resubmit my application. You yeah. know, you, yeah. so um, yeah, pretty grimy, slimy, grimy. Pretty, pretty grimy. And, and I think that that's the way that it was kind of always meant to be. And I, you know, I think Fritzker and I remember, you know, when, when the election cycle was coming around, um, I kind of joked and said, well, you know, he might be the first publicly elected official to, to get elected on basically a pro cannabis platform. And, um, you know, and, and since, you know, he, he positions himself as a champion of, of, the, of, of cannabis, of, of progress and of alternative medicines um, maybe not comprehensively, but at least with cannabis and, um, as it being a benefit, you know, basically transferring value from the black to the white market and, and rescuing, you know, what's one of the worst off in, you know, states financially. Um, but, but I think he also has, you know, really positioned this and he continues to this day to position Illinois as being the leader in social equity and that having the, the best possible law, legislative piece of legislation and, um, I guess the manifestation of that in terms of the regulations and the licensing part of it, um, you know, and it's hard because, you know, I want to support it and I want to be excited and I certainly want to see more dispensaries and I certainly want to see an increase in, in cultivation space, but I also don't want it just to go to the same group that's doing it right now. Um, so I don't know to support this next round or to want to see, because, you know, I think inevitably it's going to get hung up somehow, it, even though it seems that the state wants to move forward with it. It just seems that right now there's no way they can, because it's pretty messy. You know, um, I, I know a bunch of groups that had submitted and they, you know, they basically submitted 10 identical applications in different districts and they got deficiency notices on two and not on the others. And then when they, you know, they got, scored on some, but then they got some back as disqualified. It's the same application. It should be consistent. So, so even if it wasn't like, like totally like corrupt, it still was a disaster and, and, it, and it was messed up. So it, 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 in either way, it doesn't matter if it was, you know, by design or just by incompetence, it was, it was messed up and it should be looked at again. And I don't know if that's just going back and rescoring or, or whatever, or just scrapping it and doing another round. But the problem with all of that is, is that any solutions to these problems results in just a, a, a lengthening of the current problem of not enough product, not enough um, uh, distribution, you know, in terms of number of dispensaries. And there's places in, you know, I, I'm from Chicago, so I'm, 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 I know I'm, I'm, I, you know, I don't, I, I can't complain because there's, you know, 40 dispensaries right here, but Throughout the rest of the state, I know there's places in central and southern Illinois where you got to drive an hour, hour and a half to, to go to a dispensary. And if you're dying of something or if your only product is, you know, it's very limited in what works for you, it's really tough to drive an hour, hour and a half and they them not having the product that you need or anything that works for you. And, and so to that end, I want to see an expansion, but I also don't want to see, you know, it go to the same guy. So I'm just really in a tough spot right now with wanting to, you know, how this is going to go forward. 
I think there's some solutions, but I don't know legally or politically if these things would work. Um, I, of course, I support home grow and I'm becoming much more of an advocate of that day to day. And as a consumer, you know, I'll admit I don't grow personally and, you know, I would like to, but it's just a matter of thing, you know, it's about time and my, my skill level. Um, also, my living situation isn't necessarily the most conducive to it. But I'll be honest that I'm consuming much more homegrown from from people in my network. And, um, you know, if that's illegal, so be it. So it's kind of weird. After five years, I'm kind of back to where I began, you know. Yeah, you're back with your legacy providers. I'm coining that term from Nurse yeah. Kebra, who was recently yeah. on the Chillinois podcast. I like that. The legacy providers. We talked about that yeah. in the past, Chris, how we've come from the back alley. And every time, every once in a while, we might have to sneak back there, you know. Yeah. Um, and no, no shame in that. All I will say, and we say this every time, if you're going to go back to the back out black alleyway or however you want to term it, the gray market, you know, mm. um, just, just be sure you're working with people you trust and know. That's all I ask. Cause we Absolutely. have had things like, uh, the cartridge situation in the past where arguably people were cutting, uh, cartridges with, with things they maybe shouldn't have. I know there was a lot of things going on there, a whole political thing with Trump and vapes. Right. But but that I still think that's an important issue that you should always get your vapes from a regulated source. I mean, absolutely. And if it can happen with vapes, it can happen with anything else. You know, it's not just cutting; it's just grow method. And 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 that was intentional, right? And and maybe not intentional to poison people, but to use a cutting thing and then not really understanding the difference between you know <laughs> what yeah. is the vitamin A status. But but you know, even if something with the best intention growing or you know ripping into uh, you know pressing into rosins or doing their own bho which really shouldn't be done at home um or or doing rso's alcohol based stuff still things bad things can happen so it's not necessarily people that are deliberately trying to like hurt people or you know make money it's just sometimes things happen and that's why we look to regulated industries and and is to 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 do what they're supposed to do which is to ensure quality control and and um so, and that's what, unfortunately, on the home growth side is that, but again, when we look back at, in terms of the plant and, and the legacy side, you know, people have been doing this for a long time, basically forever. So the hope is, is that the home grow industry can kind of come together and share best practices. And I see that, and I'm so happy for that. Seeing, uh, 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 you know, best practices and, and, and encouraging each other. And there's wonderful groups on various, you know, social media platforms and such that help and if there's a new grower or somebody who's interested in growing, there's so much support and help out there that I'm, I'm, that's one of the best things about this whole thing is that because the industry, you know, when we looked at prohibition creates a black market, well, the current kind of dicey, grimy, semi quasi legit legal industry that we have right now is creating something even actually, you know, in the same way, it's creating another industry, this kind of grayish market or a white market that exists to encourage um, th- you know, using your rights as a patient and to follow the lead of other kind of leaders. And so I really look at that as being the future of, of ca- cannabis consumption, per- you know, particularly medicinal, um, because I don't want to see three or four or five massive, large, you know, cannabis companies run the whole show, because then it's just a commodity. Then it's just something, it's a brand and it's cookies and it's Skittles and all this shit. I have a good product. I don't want a brand. I really don't want to look at a company to say, oh, I like what they do. I'd rather look at a person and say, I like his style because I like the grow, I like the the the, the amendments, nutrients, I like the, the the way that they grow. You know, that's what I would support. And I'm very happy to see that be being much more prevalent today. 
So, you know, there are people that'll, that'll ask me, and I don't know that I have the best answer for this. I'll be, and I'll give you my answer. I want to think what you, I want to hear what you think about this though, Chris, people will ask me, and this is just hypothetical. I'm kind of making things up for comedic purposes too, but you know, why can't my, my buddy Terry, that's been selling me weed for 15 fucking years. Why can't he be a license holder? And really what they're asking is like, why are some of these candidates, you know, some of the 21 that are, have been announced in this 20, uh, in this tiebreaker, why are, you know, like, for example, there's a, one of the 21, I believe is a former owner, um, or operator, some big wig in Starbuds, which is a cannabis company in Colorado. Um, there's one guy that there's kind of a moral argument being made that he used to be a police officer. So why is he like being selected as a four, you know, as a mm-hmm. candidate or whatever? I mean, there's a few other questions that have be, even been asked about candidates that didn't make it into the tiebreaker um, lounge. And they all revolve around the idea that I feel like people have a warped view that, and, and it's, it's not that I disagree with it. I just think that it's like, you, you have to see the idea all the way through. So they have this warped view that when we talk social equity, we mean that my buddy Terry should be able to be a license holder. And we mm. aren't necessarily saying that Terry can't. Right. Mm. But we're, what we're saying is like, we're not going to give Terry, uh, you know, a license when he doesn't even maybe have the financial means to see that license through. Totally. I think that's what people don't see. It's not that we're limiting um, people because of their financial means, because at the end of the day, if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, you know what I mean? You can still network and go to town halls and and really garner support and uh, funding. And you, you could be a candidate. Um, but I, I don't know if you agree where I'm coming from there. If you even see what I'm talking about, or if you've heard those same questions, it's not that people are limited. Um, it, it's just that, you know, you do need funding to get into this industry. It's, well, it's, yeah. a, it's a cash sink or whatever. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it's not only money, you need to have, you know, a certain kind of business savvy. You need to have, you know, when there's any kind of regulation, you need to prove that you got the chops to, 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 to run a business. And that's why I'm not going to completely dump on the state for putting the rules and regulations in place that they did. And I'm also not necessarily going to dump on the industry, nor am I going to dump on the 21 applicants. Cause so what if somebody's connected to one of the, the current cannabis companies as a person and as a patient, I think it's bullshit that, that, you know, just like in life that those in power stay in power and, and, and that, but logistically, I mean, it makes sense, right? They have the skill sets. They know who's, you know, they know the industry. They have the well, capacity. Not only that, but there was a legal obligation. Maybe I'm wrong on that part. Maybe it's not a legal obligation, but a lot of companies were doing, um, God damn it, I can't think of what they're called. Uh, incubator programs, yeah. that's what they're called. So, I yeah. mean, that, it, it, was that a legal obligation? I can't remember. It, it, they didn't have to. I think that they were encouraged too strongly, and I think it gave the, the current companies an opportunity to have a presence in the selection—not the selection, but but in the, you know, having a role in 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 kind of stewarding the next round of applicants and, and license holders, and right. basically setting them up to say, all right, you know, if you get licensed and up and running, we'll help you in getting your business set up and things like that. And I like that. I mean, it's nice. Yeah, we talked to uh, Cole Eastman from Justice Grown about the fact that they were doing that. I just wanted to make that clear because when people bring up the idea that, you know, there's some license or some winners, you know, that have connections to the current companies, it's like, well, yeah, 
you know, that was something that they were encouraged to do. But in fact, I, w- I do want to say we talked about this with Mike Fouché from GrownIn.com, which was our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the All the companies that did an incubator program, they actually didn't get any winners. So I'm yeah. uh, sorry, though. I didn't mean to cut off your point. I feel like I cut off where you were going. No, 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 not at all. No, and, and I think really what I was just kind of getting at is that it's, it's okay because I guarantee you a lot of the non-winners um, had – people that were part of the cannabis industry and you know it's illinois i mean there's gonna be and, and that's just you know that's just the the bid process you know you leverage and actually there was a whole section of that application in a in a, in a significant amount of the points had to do with experience in the industry so it, it net you, i don't want a bunch of people that have no idea because you know what they're going to be they're going to fall apart because this isn't this is not easy opening a dispensary is not easy running and this is the most highly regulated industry and i've Fortunately, I had the background of being, you know, a, a compliance person and a financial and, and programmatic person in re- medical research and things like that. Spending government money on giving people experimental drugs and experimental therapeutic techniques. So inherently, that's the most regulated thing. So I, I, I'm, I have a background with that. Cannabis and the rollout of cannabis is very similar in terms of, I mean, highly regulated. It's not typical business. So you need you need people that have some savvy. You need people to spend some money. And to that end, the financial part of it is unfortunately needed because banks are still in a position where they're not going to give loans or they can't give loans. So what would happen if a group of altruistic, really pro-cannabis, really pro-patient, really yay, hey, social equity, everything great about them, but they didn't have two nickels to rub together? They're not going to be able to get a, a, a bank loan. They're not going to be able to get support. So they're either going to get investors behind the scene that are probably going to take advantage of them or they're going to sell their license. So you really needed to have the, the financial chops to actually do what you said you were going to do. Now, on the flip side, I do, you know, we wanted to see more diversity and that's where this was at. And I think that aside from, oh, the industry, the connections, I think the real um, shame here is in the fact that I, I, I have a suspicion, I'm not saying this because I don't know, but I have a suspicion that a lot of these tying applicants were quote unquote social equity applicants were really just, you know, astroturf. There were behind the scenes, everything about the application and everything about the group was the same old, same old, right? And then they, you know, pardon my frankness, but they hired a black person or a Hispanic person or a person with a drug record, you know, or whatever qualified that to get a veteran to, you know, they just hired somebody to, to be the face of the organization on, on paper. That's what I think is what we should be looking at here. Is it just astroturfing people and using people, um, you know, in their background uh, to, to, to get, to get to hit the checklist and then behind the scenes, it's going to be totally like it's Verano, but it's headed by a person that they paid because they fit the mold. Right. I think that that's really what we should be more, more deliberate about seeing. Um, You know, there's no problem with having connections in the industry and having connections to, um, you know, people that have made uh, a good headway in this industry. The problem is if it's really just, you know, Harvest and, and GTI and Cresco, that paid people to be the face of applications. So it's not, it's different from the incubator. It's more, a little more, I think, subversive. And that's really what I think we should be looking into now. Yeah. And so you were talking about the fact that a significant amount of points would be awarded if you did have experience in the industry. Yep. You know, the, another controversy, controversy, so to say, um, that has been raised by Mark Pesakovich, uh, Mike Fouché, 
um, Abraham Villejas um, from the medical cannabis community um, is the fact that being a veteran also got you a pretty significant boost in points. And I want to be clear. I've said this in the last show. We support the veterans. I mean, my brother is serving right now. I have all the respect for people in uniform. But I think that this, you know, it's just weird. Um, this was supposed to be about social equity. And I, I just am, I've seen people make the argument and I tend to agree with the argument that not a lot of what you'd think of as social equity candidates would be a veteran. Uh, would you yeah. agree with that, Chris? Absolutely. I do. And I, and I agree. And, and I agree with how you preface it saying nothing against the veteran community, but that in fact, I think that maybe there should be some sort of uh, something for the vets. You know, like I'm not I want to be very clear that I'm not against the veterans. There should be maybe the next 75 license go to the vets. I don't know. It's whatever. But just the fact that we're talking about social equity and I feel like if you asked 10 people, I don't think any one of them would say, you know, my definition of social equity was that that person was a veteran. Yeah. And if you look at the 21 applicants that now are in the, you know, the tie-breaking positions in all the different districts, technically they all are veteran owned. So if you didn't have a veteran as part of your ownership structure, even if you had the best story and you had the most quote unquote diversity in terms of social equity, if you missed that one piece, you wouldn't have been able to make it to the final round because that, that you needed to have a perfectly scored application. So you needed to have the quote unquote veteran points. Now, can I ask you this? Because I watched a press conference with uh, Representative Willis and Representative Ford this morning. I'm having trouble thinking of their first names, but um, oh man, I'm I lost my train of thought here. Ah, oh, darn. Um, oh, so the, I wanted to ask about the veteran thing. You know, people seem to, I'm questioning it right now. You're questioning it. We're talking about whether or not we'd really consider a veteran to be. I'm not saying that they couldn't be considered a social equity candidate, but if if it was required, which is kind of what you were saying and what I've heard other people say, if it was required to be a veteran to win, well, is this really a social equity lottery or license or, you know, is, is that who we're awarding, awarding it to or are we awarding it to veterans? And it seems like we're awarding it to veterans. Yeah. Now, we will still say, though, that they that it'd be veterans, but also with the social equity aspect. It's not like the true, veterans. true. But still, it still leaves a lot of people in the dust. And, 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 you know, and when you think about forming a company, you don't want to think about, okay, well, this is the, our application. We want to go for maximum points. We, we really should have incentivized, you know, quality of the team, quality of their strategy, quality of their focus on, you know, positive patient experience and a consistent, you know, um, it wasn't really part of it, but the medical side, you know, that we would still take care of patients, et cetera. It, it's, you know, these are rec dispensaries. So I guess that was moot, but, but more or less, we shouldn't have incentivized the structure of the team. Cause that at the end of the day, unfortunately was all that mattered. And I think that there was probably a lot of, you know, there's like three people that write applications and sell them for a lot of money. And that's essentially what happened. They were perfectly written applications. And the, and most of the, um, I think most of the thought process involved in the application was more so how do we design a team that's going to get the maximum amount of points. And I think that that really blasted a lot of people. Just, it, it just took them out of the running. And, and I think there's probably a lot of really good companies that would have done really good things and would have disrupted the industry that are never going to have a chance to do it. Well said, well said. 
So what do you uh, what do you hope to see going forward, Chris? What do you, you know? Really good question. You know, like I said, I'm, I think I always step back to say, even if it's not perfect, it's still it's progress, right? And 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 we're I, I today I all all of us I assume can just go into a dispensary and, and purchase cannabis, which is unheard of. I'm growing up, man. So I'm really happy about that. And and in 50 years when it's even more accessible and people aren't laughing about it and giggling and thinking, oh my God, and it's, you know, it's just another thing that a human being can consume. And maybe the medicinal side of it is, you know, we found out things and people are healthier and same with psychedelics and stuff. So again, I'm very happy and pleased that we're seeing progress. I do though, at this point now want to see more, uh, more progress. I want to see more licenses. I want to see more transparency the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulations is like the mob. I mean, they they run the state with an iron fist and they're tough. And, you know, and they're really in charge of this whole process in terms of the dispensary uh, side of it. So which is how we as consumers purchase. And so I want to see a little more transparency with the state. I want to see a significant expanse. And, and if this if anything, I hope this kind of disaster with dispensary and the upcoming disaster with the craft cultivation I hope that that has Illinois legislation kind of back on their heels thinking, how can we do this better? I want to see a significant increase in cultivation space. I want to see better home grow rules in, in terms of Illinois, more uh, accessible for everybody. You know, I, I love the fact that I'm a patient I can grow. And I love the fact that other patients can grow. But why should other people that don't have a piece of plastic, why shouldn't they be able to cultivate their own cannabis? It makes no sense. And why is there limits on plants? And I understand, you know, they don't want the community to, you know, be, you know, growing thousands of plants, but like five is kind of a random stupid number. Um, so I'd want to see some changes and revisions to that. And I know there's some sense of allowance for uh, gifting. I want to see that. And actually, I think that's something that we could mobilize quickly. And I think I, you know, may try to start doing that a little more advocate for some changes to the gifting provisions, if, if they even exist at all. I think that patients, um, and, to, be, to, and, and to, to honor the patients that really paved the way for this program to become successful that are now kind of left in the lurch, I'd really like to see um, a, a much more of a focus on gifting and a better allowance for gifting, particularly amongst patients, particularly if patients in financial need and in, in, in need just because they don't have the ability to grow on their own. Um, so those are things that I'd like to see. And I guess last, you know, Again, this law was passed and it was rolled out being, you know, highlighted as the best possible, the, 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 the law and set of rules and regulations for cannabis and equity and this and that. I still think that we have an opportunity because even if we screw up, we're gonna, we can fix it. And to that end, there's what, 19 states that don't have a medical program and there's four, 39 states or something that don't have recreational uh, adult use things there's still a lot of uh, room to grow. And I really hope that Illinois does pave the way in terms of successes and failures. And I really encourage everybody to do their own part with that. And that means as consumers to support the right uh, operators in the industry. And I'm not going to determine who that is, but I think everybody in their own right can determine who's, you know, cultivating good medicine, who's cultivating a good product and who's not. So support good businesses. And hopefully we see some equitable changes in the industry as we move forward. Yeah, and as a consumer, I just want to say it's also your responsibility to vote. So go to vote.gov or vote.org, and actually this uh, election season, you know, we're 
we are primarily for the Illinois cannabis crowd. Um, but this election season, you got Arizona, New Jersey, uh, South Dakota, Montana, Mississippi, um, and maybe a few more states that are voting on cannabis legislation. So it is very important to vote. Um, I wanted to just address some of the things you brought up. And Justine, I know, I'm sorry uh, that we've we've just been chatting away. Um, we talked about it before the show. Chris and I really like to talk. So. Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> I'm just listening. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, one of the things you said... Um, you know, maybe when once this whole thing goes, you know, let's fast forward a hundred years and we look back on all this and maybe we say, wow, you know, cannabis legalization was a great thing. I think that we will say that. We'll definitely yeah. say that it was a great thing. But um, one of the things you said is maybe we'll figure out that there were health benefits or whatever. Maybe though, I just want to point this out, not really to, to debate the topic or anything. Maybe we'll find out though, some of the the unhealthy things about cannabis, like smoking and dabbing. And, you know, I mean, have you ever Absolutely. taken a hot dab, Chris? Like I felt like I was dying last oh, week. Hot dab. Yeah. Laying on the ground, fucking sweating. <laughs> um, you know, so maybe we'll find out some things like that aren't so healthy, but could you take a moment, please, Chris, to, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Cause I think there's a lot to this, but could you break down the cannabis industry for the consumer? And what I mean is, I feel like a lot of people get confused, like how many hands are in the pot. So you got IDFPR, you've got the Illinois Department of Ag, you've yep. got Illinois Department of Public Health. Who else has their hands in the pot and how do okay. they play together? Gotcha. No, totally. Um, so as, as licensure, so for the patients, our, you know, we apply, we're, we're tracked, that's through the Illinois Department of Public Health. So our medical cards and our basically our, 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 our consumption, all of the things, our licensure and certification is based in the Illinois Department of Public Health. All of the dispensaries are licensed, managed, all the oversight by the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulations. All of the growing and the transportation of, of product, so the, 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 the you know, seed to sale, basically, or seed to sale to the, or, or to the dispensary is the Illinois Department of Agriculture. So behind the scenes, that's three Illinois organizations and departments that probably don't talk to each other, probably don't like each other, all their own little kingdoms and fiefdoms in and of each other. So it's not one cohesive group. So the from seed to the time that the plant is delivered into the vault of a dispensary, that's Department of Ag. From the time it's in the dispensary to the time it's sold to a patient is the Department of Financial and Professional Regulations. And when it leaves the dispensary in a patient's hand, then it's Department of Public Health. If it's a consumer, then it's just going into the ether. There's not a lot of guidance in any of those three in terms of um, best practices or you know anything. So, uh, so again, you got three different <laughs> organizations within the state of Illinois that don't like each other, don't talk to each other, that are all trying to run something that's federally illegal and you know things get screwed up and so to that end it's very complicated very convoluted and behind the scenes it's it's tough it's not is it's not a super easy thing and i do want to throw a lot of credit to the people that are in the industry working a lot of hours usually not for a lot of money that keep this going because it is a sometimes a thankless job um you know so yeah again it's it's quite complex yeah it's it's tough for people, you know, and it makes, it begs the question, should we do what other states have done like Colorado and Michigan and just make a department for cannabis? They call it the marijuana enforcement division, I think in Colorado and something similar in, uh, um, 
Michigan, but it, it begs the question if we should just have one department for cannabis, you know, or one central organization. And I, I can still see how these other organizations come into play, you know, the Department of Health and everything else. But it just seems like it's so it's it's tough to keep up with everything, you know. It is a lot of it's based on legislation too. You know that that you know we can't just like make things up as we go. And in terms of right. the the next round of licenses and applicants, you know. You just can't say, oh, no, we're going to do this or that. No, I mean, it's law. It was passed. And, and so, you know, the governor as the executor, executive branch has to, you know, enact in all these three agencies that I said are all part of the, you know, under the governor's control. They have to do what the, you know, what legislation allows them to do. And they can put rules and regulations in so long as they're under the mantra of, of the legislation. So the legislation says this group's going to, you know, Department of Public Health is going to manage this and Department of Agriculture is going to manage that. So really any changes to the program have to come through legislative change. And that's never an easy thing, particularly in our state. Yeah. Um, you know, so that it's always going to be complicated. I would I would say, yeah, it'd probably make more sense if it was all under one bucket. But I mean, that it's easier said than done. That's, you know, we, we, we're in a, <laughs> unfortunately, a fairly uh, complicated and, and, and dysfunctional state there is. So, you know, it's any change. Yeah fairly significant definitely I, one of the things that i found interesting i do you recall this at all i i remember when uh there was a change in the law for example that made it so we could get provisional licenses and mm -hmm. so then idph crafted a system so that we could do that but then there was also another change in the law that basically um made it so that we had instant the unquote instant dispensary changes and the way that it was written at the time the way the rule was written was that the dispensary would do it for you mm -hmm. well when it came out it turns out that we still file the dispens dispensary change but one of the other rules i'm just I, forgive me if i'm really jogging your memory on this one but one of the mm -hmm. other rules that i saw written that i've actually never seen come to light i, I, I believe it's in idfpr's ballpark is the idea that exchanges and returns are now legal yeah. Um, and, and one of the reasons that actually that was, there was two reasons that it was made le legal. First of all, because it's fucking bullshit that you can't return or exchange your products, especially when they can't, when they are as faulty as they can be in this fucking market. But second of all, if, if, and when, um, consumption lounges open up, dispensaries are one of the two places that can open a consumption lounge, the other yep. being a, a smoke lounge. Um, and so they made the requirement for exchanges or returns so that you could bring product back on site or just on site in general. And so have you heard about that rule and what, what's up with it? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I, and I'll be honest and say, like kind of throw my hands up and say, you know, I, I know what it is, but what, how the implementation and is it really legit and legal? So basically all up until recent, you could never consider bringing something back in. Like that was like one of the big, right. we had to have signage in the dispensary saying, you know, no, you know, you can't bring anything in here. Um, you know, we would typically take people on the road and say, you know, Hey, my cart didn't work. And for the first, well, still, but earlier, particularly the cartridges were malfunctioning all the time. And so, you know, you, you know, as a business, you want to say, well, I, I want to trust you, but you know, it's pretty easy to say, Hey, my $65 cartridge didn't work and get another one for free. Yeah. It makes sense to be able to bring the thing back in to say, yeah, I'm going to examine it or I'm going to send it back to the cultivator. Dispensaries don't make anything. And that's another thing I want to throw out in terms of, you know, what people really know about the industry. Yes, they do inherently because most of Illinois is vertical, meaning that dispensaries and cultivation centers are, are a lot of times owned by sim same companies, but that's right. 
guaranteed and it's not a requirement. And in the beginning days, that wasn't necessarily the case. So the dispensaries don't make products. They're just selling products from other organizations that are managed and, and controlled by another total branch of the government. So to that end, you know, a dispensary make their, makes their money on, on selling things. You know, they don't care if it's a bad product. Yeah, we're going to tell them it's a bad product. If you can't bring take it back, then the cultivator may say, no, we're not going to give you a credit for it. So, you know, so you could take a picture of this and that. So, so, yeah, so it was really tough to, you know, and people probably more or less were, were honest about it, but I'm sure there were some opportunistic folks. So then the Department of Ag did, or sorry, the Department of Financial Professional Regulations did make that change for that purpose because the industry really wanted it. And it was something that they should get, that that it gives more quality control because if you're able to accept a return, maybe you'll look at and try to figure out what's wrong with it. Um, and it may lessen the amount of, you know, not, you know, people that are more opportunistic, you know, you're not going to say right. the cartridge doesn't work if it's empty. Right. So, so to that end, so they changed that whether or not it's allowed right now is a different story. Um, because I've heard mixed opinions. I've heard folks say they try to take a faulty cartridge or, or, or disposable pen back and they were told to get out. And then other people said, yeah, they would just give them a credit and they wouldn't accept the actual thing. And then other people said, yeah, the, the bud tender actually took the product from me and they gave me a new one or something. So I don't know where we stand. And always remember, there's a difference between what's in the law and what's happening in terms of, um, you know, policies and procedures. There's a lot of, I mean, the, the law is fairly bulky. There's a lot of things in there and a lot of it doesn't really necessarily make any sense. And then not only is there the legislation, there's the rules and regulations, which in and of themselves are hundred, you know, a couple hundred pages. So there's a lot of things that were put there because, you know, the, 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 the cannabis program was written by lawyers and politicians that don't have, you know, they probably don't smoke weed, you know, they're probably not cool. Yeah. So they don't really know about the cannabis culture. They don't know like what kind of products. And it's actually kind of funny reading the law and saying, ha these people have no idea what they're talking about. Right. And, and so, you know, they had to write things at a time when they didn't really understand what was going on. And the people that they were paying to write these things didn't know what they were talking about. So when it ends up hitting the street, it, it's, it's loose interpretation. So dispensaries are always trying to, to, to do their best to, to operate within the rules. And sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't, they get yelled at sometimes and other times they don't, I will say behind the scenes, some dispensaries are kind of loosey goosey and others are super zipped up because they have to be. And a lot of that just depends on, you know, what person is inspecting them and how often the inspectors are coming by and if they've gotten trouble in the past. So um, that's why we see a lot of changes. And that's why there's, and I've seen a lot of frustration in the patient community about like, Oh, I go here and they're, you know, this, this group says this and that other dispensary says that and everybody's lying to me. Well, it's not necessarily they're lying to you. It's just that they may not know because the state doesn't answer questions. You cannot as a, as an, as an operator in the industry, if you ask for guidance from the IDFPR, they tell you to refer back to the policies and refer to the legislation. So they never answer questions. They just say, read the book, you know? So it's hard to get, it's hard to get a clear cut uh, rule. But I would say that if there is faulty product, the number one thing is to take a picture of it, talk to your dispensary. And if, I'll be honest, if your dispensary will not give you a credit for something that's faulty, then change dispensaries, go elsewhere, shop elsewhere. They don't, you, they don't deserve your business. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to clarify. Yeah. I don't think that, it, I mean, if you've heard differently, that's, you know, that's that, but I don't, I don't know of any dispensaries that are currently accepting exchanges or returns. And ultimately I was asking that because it sounds like you've heard exactly what I've heard that technically yeah. now they are legal. 
But what I've always heard is that IDFPR is like drafting the rules and regulations behind what it means to do a return or exchange. And it's just, and they always say like they've, I've been saying any day now for months, almost almost (laughs) a year now that the rules would be coming out. So I just wanted to ask about that. So, yeah. And anytime um, you hear it, there's always this like 60 day window too, or even a (laughs) night window of it having to go through what they call JCAR, which is just the joint council of administrative review or something like that. So basically, even though, the, 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 the political body that's responsible for carrying out and maintaining the, the, the program, they still have to, you know, give their policies and procedures to another state committee to make sure that they pass it. Because what they're doing is saying, all right, this is the implementation rules. And now we're going to compare the, the, the policies and procedures and the impl- implementation rules to the legislation to make sure that it's all, you know, up to snuff. So it's this kind of cyclical inner relational series of bureaucracy and everything. So that's why nothing ever happens quickly. And that's why when, you know, the opioid pro alternative opioid program and the provisional licensing things, that's why it took like three to six months for that to actually happen. You know, when they started talking about it, it took forever because IDFPR and IDPH had a draft rules, send them to something. And 60 days later they said, okay, this works. And it just, everything takes time. Definitely. Hey, Justine, I'm going to put you on the spot because I got to go to the bathroom. Um, what do you, what do you, what do I think? And what, I guess, what do you think about possession limits and limits with plants? Cause Chris brought that up. I want to, what do you think about, what do you, what do we think about those limits? Yeah. I mean, possession limits are dumb. And the, to go back to what you said, Chris, five plants does seem like kind of a arbitrary number considering mm-hmm. You know, in Michigan, we know from talking to Mike Anacast that their patients are allowed to have 12 each. Um, So I personally, I think that we feel that the possession limits and the home cultivation limits are just, they're too low, honestly. I mean, if you're truly using this as medicine the way that you should, um, yeah, I mean, what what is five plants going to do for you while you're waiting for your next harvest? It's not going to get you through. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's also, you know, again, going back to the, you know, these rules were put in place by people that don't grow cannabis and probably don't consume and probably don't want to. So, you know, they probably don't understand that, you know, it's not that you get a seed and you got five awesome plants that are going to be perfect and exhibit the traits that you want them to exhibit. And they don't understand that some people like to dabble in genetics and breeding. Um, and to that end, five plants is never enough. And, you know, sacri- if you had five plants to sacrifice a male would be r- r- stupid. So, you know, so there, again, when it's, you know, we, they should have tapped into the cannabis community a little bit more before they just arbitrarily said five sounds good. And, and I will say that the cannabis community throws a lot of credit and praise to some quote unquote progressive politicians in Illinois and, and whereas I want to say, yes, thank you for, for voting and thank you for, you know, sponsoring and pushing through legislation, I also kind of criticize them for not actually tapping into the community. They did this in a very political way, and it kind of bothered me because you can see that in the home grow provisions. There's, there's, they, a grower was not consulted to say, tell me about the process of growing cannabis and how a patient would, would want to. 
Um, you know, they just, I picked a number that sounded good and probably made it easier to pass, you know, for, for people, you know, I think it should, I'd say it should be open. If somebody wants to grow, let them grow. <laughs> What's the, you know, but, but I think that if at, at a, at a minimum increase it, you know, to 10, 20, 30, whatever, just to give people the option, it's not going to result in a humongous black market. I think what they're concerned with is that people are going to, underground guerrilla grow and share and they're not going to collect their taxes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of my favorite examples of the people being involved in cannabis don't understand cannabis is um, I was walking around our inspectors from the IDPH um, at the dispensary one day and they were asking about our display products that we had out. And they were like, oh, what are those bigger canisters that you've got in there? And I was like, oh, that's for flour. And after about close to five minutes, I finally realized they thought I was talking about cooking flour, not yeah. actually like the, the plants. Yeah. And it was just a moment for me where I'm like, wow, you guys are supposed to be telling me what I can do with this. And you don't even know what it is. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Ridiculous. You know, and, and, and I'm going to kind of riff on that and say that in, in, in back to the medical program and back to the states that are curious about doing this, there's, I think that we lose something when we go in the adult use side and rec side that, that kind of puts the, the medical program in, in the, on the back burner. Um, when I, I, I think that that's kind of farsighted and, and, and I think we should be looking at medicinal use as a bigger market because more people consume cannabis for medicinal purposes than for recreational purposes. And I know that's a big statement, but I don't think the majority of people that are buying recreationally want to get zooted up and just crazy. I think that they want to chill out or they want to try to deal with pain or they want to relax at the end of the day or sleep better, or they just want to be happy and peaceful. You know, those are all medicinal purposes. I would argue to say that everybody consumes cannabis medicinally to that end. When you try to engage a physician and you're talking about stuff that they have no idea if you look at different states like Pennsylvania and Oklahoma, crazy as it sounds, they took an active role in connecting with doctors and physicians and educating them and creating an opportunity to learn and grow as a community. And those physicians in those states have a better understanding of cannabis and its in its applications and uses. And it's and it's the leads, it's the combination, a coordination of 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 combining, you know, people that are, are steeped in the industry, know what dabbing is, and you know, they all know all the different slang terms and terminologies and everything. And they can translate that to medical professionals in the same capacity as politicians. We really need a better group of advocates and that are part of policy design and implementation. And, you know, there's the known people that are always at the table and in photo ops that, okay, the, 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 the patient and the this and the that. I think we need to, to kind of as a community come together a little bit better and say, tap into us more as you're creating these things because it'll be a more efficient process. And, and that exists on the political side. It also exists on the medicinal side in terms of developing products. And, and, and because I think a lot of physicians would be interested in stuff. It's just the, the branding and the marketing is going to keep them away from it. So, so I think, again, we need to have a little bit more of a connection in terms of those that understand the plant and understand its uses and its, and its you know, practical applications. Because the, the legislation and the, and the policymakers then put in you know, rules and regulations that make no sense. And I think we're dealing with that right now. And, 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 and they're trying to fix these things in, in the background and it's taking a lot of time. 
Definitely. Um, so just to return to the topic of griminess in the cannabis industry, in the Illinois cannabis industry, um, you might know that Illinois cannabis companies lobbied against the right for all adults to cultivate at home. Um, so there, there's another um, pointer to the idea that or it reinstills the idea that you were talking about, which is that, you know, the people in the industry don't necessarily support the industry. And oftentimes I get told, the reply I get. I get when I bring up that idea that they lobbied against home grow was that they were doing it so that the CRTA would have a higher likelihood of passing, um, which I can see. I can see that as like a reason that you might think is viable, but I just really don't think that it's uh, a, a stretch to argue that all adults should be able to cultivate this at home. It's not like, um, it's dangerous. I mean, this is <laughs> these companies lobbying against um, the right to grow at home is something that's straight out of a South Park episode. I'm not even joking. Totally. They did a episode, uh, I think, uh, MedMen and Tegrity Farms were lobbying <laughs> against people's right to grow on the basis that home grows were exploding and etc yeah. etc et it's hilarious right but it's crazy to see this stuff actually happen and people yeah. will say that it was for like political reasons or compromise i don't buy it i don't buy it at all because these are the same companies that wrote demand studies that said they could supply the demand um and they sh have shown that they couldn't but justine you did a great job in passing that um pop quiz and uh you know verbalizing the fact that we think limits are bullshit because i mean what what i will say chris i, I don't know if you knew this about illinois but illinois is a keep what you grow states so i really like that about illinois law and what i mean by that is uh it says anything any amount at home that exceeds 30 grams must be secured in the uh home yeah. and what what lawmakers have told me that means kelvin mccabe included um that there is no possession limit at home. And I think that's yeah. extremely progressive yeah. uh, for the state of Illinois. But I think that possession limits in and of themselves, the whole idea, it's fucking stupid. I don't know how, like <laughs> how we even got to it. It's almost like you say, it's the mixture of like somebody who knew just enough about cannabis, but not like really anything more than like, Oh, you usually buy an ounce okay, we'll make an ounce le legal to possess. And it's just like, you know what? It's crazy. I always use this example on the podcast. It's crazy to me that the only thing that's stopping me from going to the liquor store right now and buying out the whole fucking place is my credit card, like yeah. my balance on my credit card. That's. Yeah. It's not like anybody's going to stop me. Like I could literally buy 50 bottles of Everclear, which would kill me if I yes. tried to consume it. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It would kill me. And nobody would stop me from doing it. They might say, they might make a joke like, hey, hey it looks like you're going to have fun tonight. But nobody's going to stop me from doing that, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, wow, I don't know how, I want to like go back to where, when did possession limits originally appear? And like, what does it even, what does it even come from? Like, I don't, it's interesting to me, we've said it earlier, but it, Illinois has made cannabis a little bit more legal. That's how I say it. It's not legal. Yeah. It's a little bit more legal. So, and what I mean by that is anything above 30 grams, you can get a class A misdemeanor for. And mm -hmm. if you have, if you possess a, over a hundred grams, you can actually lose your right to vote. Yeah. You can get a felony. And it's just crazy to me that 
if you think about like alcohol, I, I keep bringing it back to alcohol. Like nobody ever stops me. They're like, they're not like, you can only have a six pack. No, you can literally buy six 30 packs. I mean, like there is no, I, I can't think of any other industry where something like this applies. You can literally have as many guns as you want. <laughs> you know what I mean? But cannabis, for some reason, there's limits on. And I think for the most part, you know, every every state that's gone through the, well, again, we'll call it the, the life cycle. Um, yeah. I think it just started because because nobody knew what the hell they were talking about. And, and, and it, you know, it probably was an easier thing to pass in the beginning to say, well, you know, we don't want people to get ridiculous. And, and every state that has a recreational or adult use legal program started, the predecessor was a medicinal medical program. To that end, medicine has titration, medicine has dosing, you know, so to keep it in the bucket of medicine, they need to kind of put some sort of, well, you know, yeah, you, you know, you can't take 37 Xanax, you know, well, you can't, but, you know, so they had to have some sort of arbitrary number, which was just throw a dart at the wall and make it up. And, and probably for the less informed folks, they, the lower, the better, um, you know, or, and that's why we see these kind of odd medical States, Iowa and how Florida kind of was, you know, in the terms of, you know, uh, restrictions on, you know, how much milligrams and edibles and no smokable flour or THC limits, which is the most asinine thing ever. Those are from coming from really uneducated lawmakers and into the point of, you know, you brought up Cole about, you know, uh, the industry saying, well, we stand more of a, you know, if we support limits or things like this, then we're, uh, uh, or restrictions, then we're helping it pass. Okay. I'll, I'll accept that at face value um, and say that, okay, you know, you start with no smokable flour, but other stuff. But then after the law passes, then you immediately start advocating and lobbying and pushing for an expansion of the program. And back to that point about the industry saying, you know, well, you know, we needed to see this thing pass. And we put in the, you know, we lobbied uh, against, um, you know, complete adult use grow and only for medicinal patients because it helped it pass. Okay, well, then the medical industry or the existing operators in the industry should now start lobbying diligently for an expansion of home grow. Of course, they're not going to do that. So unless they do that, it means they were completely and utterly full of shit. And that's where I, I will stand and say the industry just didn't want us competing uh, against them. And they, uh, they, they, you know, and, and they knew that people grew better pot <laughs> quite simply that the best growers are not growing for the cultivators. They're growing in their own, for their own selves and their own circle. And, and they didn't want competition. So that's why. And if they want to prove me wrong, they can start lobbying right now for an expansion of, of either uh, limits on home grow uh, for patients and more so open access for all residents in the state of Illinois. That That's plain and simple. Yeah. So, uh, Justine, Chris, why don't we uh, spark up some cannabis to close out this show? I got a few more topics to uh, talk about, but I feel like we could do it under a mellow haze, if like you know it. what I mean. Um, so let's let's spark up. I'm gonna hit the dab pen because I'm inside. But there you go. Good stuff. Good stuff. Legal. Good virtual session right now. Hell yeah, man. Well, and it's nice to smoke with somebody else, you know, with COVID and everything, you kind of lost that big, that's a big piece of the cannabis community is the, very much, you know, enjoying it together. So this is nice. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. So you were talking about, um, how every other state has taken the trajectory of, uh, enacting a medical program for cannabis and then having an adult use program to follow. Yep. I want to reiterate 
this November, you got a lot of states on uh, with measures on the ballots that could legalize cannabis in South Dakota, particularly. Uh, they're looking to enact medical and adult use programs in one fellow swoop. So um, if you're in any of those states that I mentioned earlier, it's South Dakota, New Jersey, Montana, Arizona, Mississippi. Um, I believe that's it for this November. Um, definitely register to vote. Go to vote.org, vote.gov. They both seem to accomplish the same goal, which is awesome because they're nice, easy to remember links. Vote.gov, vote.org. Um, it's important to vote. So one of the things I wanted to talk about as we're smoking this cannabis um, and closing out the show, my joint went out, oh. is that uh, gifting is legal. You brought up brought that up earlier. Um, there's a few conditions, though, that must be met. It, and actually, somebody posted on our subreddit um, from Illinois. Now, this is crazy because we've had this on our subreddit's wiki since I'd say January of this year. So pretty early on, we were confirming the fact that gifting seemed to be legal because they define casual delivery in the law. Um, but we actually got it confirmed by Kelvin McCabe and a few other people that gifting is legal, but there are a few conditions. So first of all, um, you cannot give away your home cultivated cannabis. Seems seems fair, right? Uh, I would argue, though, that it doesn't, and which is what we were talking about earlier. We're hoping that maybe we see an expansion of the ability to gift medical to medical, right? That'd be nice yeah. because, you know, it's the whole idea. This program started as the compassionate use of cannabis. So you'd think that we would, out of being compassionate, you'd think we would allow things like that. But um, so anyways, uh, you can't, so you can't give your home cultivated cannabis away. You can't give away your medical cannabis that you purchase at the dispensary because if if any of you guys will recall there you know that product is set aside as adequate supply it's set aside for you as a medical patient so for you to give that away to somebody i would argue that that's not only is it illegal but you should question your morals (laughs) in doing that you know because this is stuff they set aside for sick people so the other um thing uh, conditions i guess you'd have to meet and these are pretty straightforward is that the person you gift they must be 21 uh, years of age or older. And if, uh, you know, they're from Illinois, you can only give them 30 grams of flour, five grams of concentrate and 500 milligrams of edibles. But if they're out of state, it's half of all that. So 15 grams of flour, two and a half grams of concentrate, 250 milligrams of edibles. That's what you can gift somebody out of state. Now, of course, you can't drive out of state and gift that cannabis, technically Mm -hmm. speaking, but yeah, so that's that's kind of how it all plays out. And like I was mentioning, there was a user that recently posted. It made me feel good. It kind of affirmed from the state of Illinois. So it's an Illinois.gov website that reaffirms the fact that, yes, cannabis, gifting cannabis is, in fact, legal. So, yeah, that's that's cool. You know, the thing that I think you're talking about, though, um, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is the gifting from medical to medical or just yeah. the whole overall expansion of that scene. Because, I mean, Michigan and Washington. I mean, Washington, D.C. has basically been floating off the gifting market. Totally. Since it legalized, you know, so. And and, that's, and I'd like, to, I'd like to see Illinois do that because I think be, because they kind of left patients in the lurch and right now, you know, without any expansion in sight and without any, you know, I, I, I there was several dispensaries kind of took a medical only uh, angle. And, and a lot of that was just based on the fact that the municipality did not allow them to go recreational. I think a couple still have decided to stay with the medical crowd because, you know, why not? It's just it, it, it's easier. 
Um, but but I, I think that having a kind of a segregated side for people that want to, you know, continue on the medical side and want to have that protection. And there's an accessibility uh, bonus in terms of, you know, folks now that wouldn't go anywhere near a dispensary because if it's a med rec and it's all in the same footprint, well, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a little tougher if you're, if, you know, if you're not part of the culture, you know, if you're only looking at it for one end. Um, and, and the other side too is I just think in terms of price, it really would do good for, for the optics in terms of, you know, remember the, the, it was a compassionate use of cannabis act. There's not a lot of compassion when you're taking money from sick and dying people. And, and that's what it is. And, and in terms of the industry, I, I couldn't be part of it anymore because I couldn't live in myself. I couldn't, couldn't stand to be part of that. And it was really rough. Um, and, and, and I think from the state's perspective, you know, they're not really necessarily collecting taxes on the medical side of it. They're, it's very, very small. It's the, sure. Use recreational sites. So to that end, the state wouldn't be losing any money really if if they allowed medical uh, 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 gifting, you know, for compassionate use. Um, it would only be the industry. So to that end, I think that we, you know, that kind of gives us a little look and saying, oh, who's really in charge here? Is it the politicians or is it the industry? And unfortunately, I think the industry has a, a lot of clout, and uh, yeah. you know, so that's one thing I definitely like to see an expansion. Here, here's an area in which I think that the current cultivators are abusing uh, our medical patients. I think they're. I think it's not a stretch to say that it's like abuse. Um, on January first, we were allowed. I mean, we were given the right to cultivate at home, and on that same day, um, according to law, medical cannabis patients or medical cannabis dispensaries could start to sell uh, seeds. Yeah. They could, but they weren't required to, you see. So they don't, and they still don't. Well, I, I'll take that back. Some some dispensaries do sell seeds, but it's not that you planned on buying them. They just pop up in your flower. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that was It was an easy one. Um, hey, you know, you brought up an idea that's, it may be the smoke, it may be just you talking, but it, I don't know, it's really fucked up. What do you think about the fact that you know, we've been talking about more adult use dispensaries and there's a, a limit of 500 um, that could totally, you know, open up in the state. So limit of 500. We all know that Chicago could support that in and of itself, but let's not get into that. Let's talk about the fact that there are currently no plans to expand medical cannabis dispensaries. In other words, the 50 that we got, that's what we that's what we got. What do you think about that? Isn't that kind of fucked up? Cool. I think that's like another it's another I sign think, of us just forgetting about the medical patients. I think you just stumbled upon what could possibly be the next the best possible solution to a lot of problems right now because we can lobby as a patient community or just a community for well the the you know I said before it's it's easier said than done. You can't just say oh it, it's it, the, the the process is screwed up with the with the next round of licensure or the you know it, it requires legislative change. Well, LaShawn Ford and, you know, Catherine Willis and, and a whole host of other politicians have issues with how this is all shaking out. Well, I think we can mobilize some good change here by redoing an expansion of the medical, the compassionate use, and having medical-only dispensaries in medical-only cultivation. And to that end, you know, there's a, there's a and I don't, I don't want to, like, say, oh, they're the best group ever and, and stuff, but Shelby County was a nonprofit cannabis cultivator, right? And, and that was crazy. And, you know, they kind of quietly worked over the years, you know, and, and have been there since, they, you know, basically day one. 
as an, in a nonprofit model to serve patients and to serve, you know, their, their core constituents, which is, I think, low-income folks in Shelby County, Illinois, off of the profits and proceeds they're making from their, their, their cannabis company. So it's not going in investors' pockets necessarily. It's going, you know, the revenues and profits made from their sales are going back into the community. I kind of like that model. And to that end, it wouldn't be cutting into the adult use in the recreational sales if there was an expansion because it would only be able to serve medical patients. I think we should see a whole new crowd of medical dispensaries that are only medical that, that want to continue on to make inroads with the medical community, physicians and, and, and nurses and chiropractors and all sorts of, and behavioral health care you know, providers, all sorts of healthcare providers, and really look at this legitimately, clinically, and not cross, you know, so to speak, um, you know, not muddy the waters and, and try to be a faux medical dispensary and a, and a recreational dispensary at the same time. I would love that. And as a, as a person who's done some business, I would love to do that because I'm, I don't, you know, I, the, the, the industry is backed entirely by stockbrokers, right? I think it would bring a whole new crop of investors, social impact investors. And that's all over the place in our, across all of our industries is being shown to be a much better model people that are competing at market, but, but competing for things other than cash money profit, better people, better communities, better products, you know, better health outcomes across the board, better, better, better. I think that would be a great opportunity to incentivize a new crop of business people in Illinois to expand the market, to serve what's currently underserved and to do it in a, in a, in a better way. So if, if the community could rally behind that, I think that that would be a wonderful solution to all of our problems. The state wouldn't lose a nickel in revenues. The current operators wouldn't lose a nickel in revenues. It would just allow better accessibility and a focus in a, in a group of licenses dedicated to people that aren't interested in solely making money. They pay for their business. They, they do well, but they're really focused on the, the health and positive health outcomes. And that's kind of where I'm at with this. I'd like to see more of a so not, you know, more of a social impact side of, of, of this, this industry. And I think that that's a great way right there. Do you think a possible avenue for that would be, <clears throat> I don't know if it's been, if it's been uh, recreated or whatever, but I'm under the impression, I think when we were talking, Chris, before I got into the cannabis industry, like as a registered medical cannabis patient about the fact that Bruce Rauner, um, uh, dissolved the board. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what their what what the official title was called. What, but it was a board of uh, healthcare professionals um, and other in, insightful folks. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think an avenue would be? I don't know if JB Pritzker has recreated that board. Do you know? Like no, he hasn't. Um, no, that was dissolved. And that was kind of the trade-off with PTSD and um, right. <laughs> they basically said, "We'll give you these couple. We'll give you PTSD and Crohn's, but but that's the last fucking thing you'll get. Exactly. We're dissolving the fucking <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what happened. And he dissolves the like cannabis or the advisory board or whatever. They 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 nixed it, and it was as a concession to PTSD and Crohn's. Um, I think reviving that would be awesome because. Like I said, we're, we're, we got two very, very different things going on right now. We've got a medicinal market and an adult use recreational market coexisting in the same place when they're fundamentally different things. It's the same plant. The plant doesn't give a shit if you are consuming it because you don't want to be in constant pain or you're dying of cancer or you're trying to eat lunch or you know, you, you're, you're suffering significantly and, and, and have not found uh, any, any treatment options that help a behavioral health disorder. 
or if you just want to chill out or if you want to giggle with your friends and you're going to a concert, you know, the plant doesn't care. The plant's there for you no matter what. So what we should do is, is you know, respect the plant and we should segment the, the, the two major groups right now and not try to trip over each other. Let, let the medical side have its own footprint and let the adult rec side have its, its footprint. I would much rather, you know, go that route. And I think most of the patients and most of the people that were part of the medical industry at first would much prefer that. Because the one funny thing is, if you look back in the first couple of years of the program, there's a lot of really cool people that made a lot of sacrifices and worked very hard and didn't get a lot of credit or praise or cash or money or anything that really, really made the program what it is. And none of those people, unfortunately, are in the industry anymore. They got chewed up and spit out. And, and so I think a lot of those folks would much rather, um, and, and those are people that did really good, cool things. I think those folks would love to come back and focus specifically on medical cannabis and have be, be somewhat isolated, segregated from, you know, and again, I have nothing against adult use recreation. I, there's no, it doesn't, it's no different to me. It's just how the industry responds and then the rules and regulations surrounding it. So so again, I think it's a great opportunity. Well said. <clears throat> so Chris, I just want to thank you for coming on to the Chillinois podcast. And I want to thank you for being the person that you are, because I want to rewind to, to how I met you at the time. I knew I qualified for the can, the medical cannabis program, um, but I wasn't really sure how to go through the process. And so I gave you a call. You were a patient care specialist. I believe that was your title at the time. Is that correct? Yeah. And, uh, you know, what I I was talking to Justine before we hopped on the call today, I was like, I think today's going to be a long podcast because I called Chris Zach the first time I, you know, the the first time I ever called Chris Zach, I just expected it to be a five minute phone call. And I ended up being on the phone with him for an hour and 20 minutes. (laughs) And then I called you, you told me to call you when I got my card and it took 91 days. Exactly. Not that I was counting. Right. And, uh, (laughs) I called you and told you that I got the card and we both celebrated and fucking got on the phone for another hour. So um, (laughs) I knew that we would have a lot of things to talk about today because we're talkers, right? But that's um, right. I also wanted to bring you on because you've got a lot of experience in the cannabis industry. Um, And I think you're, I think where you're coming from is well-grounded um you're not you you never struck me as somebody who's just trying to get another patient to sign up or a profiteer you've always struck me as somebody who is morally sound and um just overall a really good guy so i wanted to say that to you on air um thank you you know i think a lot of the people you worked with would say the same because i know you helped a lot of people out um thank you it it was uh it's in 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 to you and to any folks out there that, that would be listening. And it, it was, it was absolutely my pleasure. You know, of course there's a lot of pressure in, in terms of numbers and, and, you know, I, I wanted to do well, but I also wanted to be a liaison and I also wanted to connect dots. And I was fortunate to have done that for a whole lot of people. And, um, and, in the best work I've ever done in my life. And I legitimately mean that there's, there's two specific things is one is, I know that I opened the door for a lot of people. And, 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 and the second is at the dispensary side, um, I, I, I didn't know what I was capable of until I spent time with people that were sick and dying. And, and, and otherwise, just looking in again, it's not just a medicinal thing. It's just a human thing. People are looking for, for something, and, and here was something that I knew well enough, and I 
was able to share a little bit of space and time with another human being and connect on a level. And, and man, oh man, it was the greatest thing ever. And in those early days, not to say that it's not super cool now, but you know, back in the early days and, and stuff, it was so cool. And, and like I said, the best work I've ever done in it, and it made such an impact on my life. And, and, uh, and it really, it really gets me right now emotionally to, to hear that. And I'm great that we're coming full circle. Cause I remember our first call and, uh, and, and, now here we are talking and, and it's, and it's, I'm so proud of all the work that, that we've done as a community to get to this point. And that's why, even though there's flaws and there's problems and there's pains in the ass and there's obvious corruption and all this and that we're still here. And, and we're, we got more options now than we did a couple years ago than we did 10 years ago. And I only look forward to the future and I see nothing but more progress and more success. So, you know, to the community out there, thank you all. I love you all very much. And I look forward to, the, the ever ongoing uh, progress that we're going to make as people who are committed to uh, each other in community and in and, and good things. So thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, for sure. I just want to say that we'll have, I mean, we've been talking about this since we first started talking, but we'll have to get together sometime, you know, say what you will about Nancy Grace, Bill O'Reilly, um, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. They were right about one thing. The world did end when Illinois legalized cannabis or nearly right. <laughs> Sorry. I, that's a stupid joke. So, um, but on the real, I, I'm so excited. I'm, I mean, I think we all are for all this shit to end and we'll have to get together and smoke a good old fashioned joint. Oh yeah. Um, you know, in person, like we've been talking about. So, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I just want to say that you're always welcome here on the Chillinois podcast. I wanted to say that, you know, we're obviously really close and we get along well. So I'll definitely be reaching out to you in the future. But if there's ever anything that you would like to promote, reach out to me. And on that note, if you guys go to chillinois.net slash podcast, scroll down and click the button that says be heard. Um, it will bring you to a page that will allow you to send us an email, uh, shoot us a text, or even leave us a voicemail. I'm not going to answer your phone call, so it's going to go to voicemail. I'll tell you that right now. But um, <laughs> maybe I'll answer your call, Chris. But uh, all jokes aside, if you want to get in contact or even come on the show, uh, that's your avenue to do it. Chris, you got my phone number, so you just reach out to me. But uh, I always throw that out there for all of our listeners. If you want to come on to the Chillinois podcast to promote what you're doing or to promote change or anything in the industry. This isn't just Justine, Justine and I's podcast. This is the community's podcast and we want to give a bullhorn to anybody that needs it. Right. So. All right. Cool. Thanks for coming on, Chris. It was nice to meet you. Justine, thank you so very much. Yep. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you guys all next time. All right. Bye.